you have a credo for your practice and your relationship with your clients. Yeah, it's, 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 it's exactly what we talked earlier on. Listen and hear what they're saying before you talk, number one. Number two, they're very important to you because they are your clients. And if you like them and want them to continue, understand that you have to deal with them on that basis. And number three, they're not smarter than you. They're the ones taking risks, and you're there to assist them. It's as simple as that. You're basically your client's partner, but you're not the partner in their business. You're the partner in their plan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, that's the way I've always operated. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one -on -one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co-Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or... Are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that, and then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot -E 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 com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Welcome and thank you for joining me today for episode 46 of Icons of DT Area Real Estate. My guest today is Steph Tucker. Steph is a recently retired senior partner at Venable Law Firm, and he served 55 years in the, in, uh, the law practice. He still counsels uh, some of his clients on a pro bono basis. And then he also is a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, teaching two courses there and also a course at the Georgetown Masters in Real Estate program as well. He discusses his roots in Michigan and passion for the law including tax law primarily. He began his career in 1963 and uh, serving the tax court. And then he went to Aaron Fox and was at that firm for 10 years before starting his own firm, Tucker Flyer, in 1974. He shares stories about his clients, about lessons he learned from his mentors, um, about lessons he's teaching to his uh, 
associates and to the students that he's had over the years. He's been teaching basically since 1969 at four, actually five different universities. So teaching has been a passion for his, as he talks about. So one of the things he, he does mention is his 18 points about that he shares with all of his students and all of his associates, which I will share here. Very, very good things to know. More about life than about law, frankly. So I hope you enjoyed reading those and learning. So the thing that really resonated with me is that he cared about his clients, about the profession, and the diligence that he had in everything that he did. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Steph Tucker. Steph Tucker, welcome to Icons of DCA Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you. So I understand you formally retired from practicing law, at least billing, and yet remain active in teaching and advisory work. Tell me about tell me about what you're doing now. Okay. Yes, I did formally retire from the practice of law because I thought 55 and a half years of billing by the tenth of the hour was more than enough for anyone. <laughs> I, I, however, I enjoyed. I loved the practice of law. I loved the kind of work that I did. And I still am counseling, without any billing, some 10, 15 different clients that I had. They're working with other lawyers in my office, or sometimes not in my office, but I'm still counseling them. And in many respects, John, I was a counselor more than a lawyer in the traditional sense for a number of years, okay? I, mean, I, I used to say that I, I should have had a social work, especially <laughs> with a lot of the families that I was working with, okay? I, I'm teaching. I, I teach in, at Michigan in the fall, two courses. One is called tax planning for real estate, which has always been my specialty, and the other is business planning. And because I've been involved in business planning for so many years, I'm also teaching at Georgetown School of Continuing Studies. It's not the business school. It's not the law school. Mm-hmm. It actually has an office right next door to my office in Venable. And I thought it would be really easy at one time just to walk next door, but it's all been remote. And I'm teaching a course in entrepreneurship. What does it mean to be an entrepreneur? Because my clients were all entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I did represent some individuals at large companies, but I didn't represent large companies. And, and, and I was very pleased to work with the people who are directly at risk. So that's what I'm doing right now, plus working on my stamp collection. Your stamp collection. I have. exactly (laughs) right. Exactly right. And you still attend Michigan football games? I will, hopefully this fall. I mean, I'm an adjunct, and I don't know if they're going to let me do it in person. But you have to understand, as I've tried to explain to other people, when I went to Michigan, our football team was abominable. Okay, we would leave at halftime because the March – well, it was 50, early 60s through 63. Bo came in 64, okay? Actually, Bo came in 69. Oh, 69. I'm sorry. Yes, right, because that was a big Ohio State game. 64 right. is when we finally started to win basketball games with Cassie Russell. Yes. Okay. They won you're the right. Rose Bowl. They went to the Rose Bowl in 64. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you're right, okay? Uh, but we didn't do anything when I was there. The marching band was better than the football team. So, so it, you know, I, yes, I would do it. But the big house is an experience, as you know. Whether we win or lose, 110,000 like people sitting Nothing on bleacher like seats, squeezed into each other. It's an experience. I've taken clients there. I've taken colleagues there. And yes. win or lose, it's an experience. 
Uh, we could go on and on about Michigan, oh, <laughs> but I think absolutely. I want to keep going absolutely. here and go back to your roots within the state of Michigan. Sure. So tell me about those. Well, I was born in Detroit and lived in Detroit until I was 10, and then we moved to Flint. So why did you move? My dad was working with an insurance company, and they asked him to head the office in Flint, and that's why we moved. Neither of my parents went to college. Okay, so I was really the first to go to college. And Flint was a really good town to grow up in. It was a small town. It was really a GM town Mm -hmm. at a time when GM was really thriving. Flint had both the only plant for Chevy and the only plant for Buick. So, And Chevy was number one in the country, and Buick was actually number three. And I went to Flint Central High School, graduated in a class of 685 people. Then I couldn't afford That's to a go. Class. That was but Flint only had two real high schools. The rest were uh, Catholic high schools of Flint Central and Flint Northern. And then I couldn't afford to go away to school, so I went to Flint Community College, which was a great experience. I then got scholarships, went to Michigan Business School on a scholarship for two years, and Michigan Law School for scholarship on scholarship for three years. And that John is what makes me the most loyal Michigan person around. It wasn't teams; it was what they did for me what they enabled me to do in the future. Was it academic scholarships? Uh, yes. I, 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 in Flint Community College, you had to take something in the gymnasium arena for credit to graduate. Okay. So I actually got all A's of Flint Community College except for one course. I got a B in square dancing. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't really do a do do All right. So I had an academic scholarship at the business school. And then I had an academic scholarship from the business school to law school. Mm-hmm. So what did your what did your dad do? My dad headed a uh, local office of an insurance company. That was the kind of insurance company in those days where it was factory worker oriented. You'd collect a premium of 50 cents or a dollar a week from each of these people for $500 of life insurance or maybe a thousand if they were really doing it. It was a different world. Mm-hmm. It was a different world. You you worked at Prudential. This is a very different world. It was United Insurance Company, it was called. But that's what my dad had. So we moved to Flint. Mm-hmm. So he was a salesman, basically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And my mom was a stay-at-home mother. Right, right. So talk about your academic influences. I mean, what, what turned you on to what got you into, you know, where you where you are today? You started in business and then you evolved. Well, actually, I was always going to law school. I, I mean, really? I don't know if it was Perry Mason or some of the books that I read, although I never wanted to be school, a litigator. Even in yeah, high school? even in high school, I knew I wanted to go to law school. And I had no relatives in law school. And most of the lawyers I knew in Flint were either in medical malpractice or workers' comp or something like that. And I didn't want to do that at all. But my my uncle, who was a CPA in Detroit, working for actually a real estate company, said, you know, take business courses before you go to law school, because you can't maybe have the money, but if you have business courses, you could work while you're in law school and you could help pay for everything. So I actually went to business school as a a means of getting into law school and being able to pay my own way because my parents could. Even in business school, you knew that Oh, yeah. Law was where you were going to go. Absolutely. That's interesting. Absolutely. Normally, it's the other way around. (laughs) Truly. Truly. And I think a lot of people say, well, why didn't you uh, go into business world? Uh, No. I I always wanted to practice law, and I never wanted to take all the financial risk that my business clients took. I admired them. I loved working with them. My risk as a lawyer was I could lose my billable time. 
but I wasn't going personally real estate debt and other debt, as sure. we can talk about later. Oh, of course. And so I was never that risk-oriented. I was risk-oriented enough to form my own law firm at some point, but not, mm-hmm. not to go into business. Interesting. Interesting. So you, those two years in business school, you got a sense of what risk meant. Oh, yeah, and I took a course. What happens is when you're in accounting those days, yeah. accounting was black and white. Right. I took asset accounting, right. basic accounting. And then I took tax accounting. And all of a sudden, everything became gray. You could do this. If it wasn't capital gain, it was ordinary income. Could you defer or, or ordinary income? Or could did you have to take it? If it wasn't deductible, it was capitalizable and written off over a period of time. And it was, all of a sudden, everything had alternatives. I loved it. And that's what I decided I was going to be a tax So the complexity writer. interested you? Oh, I loved it. Really? I loved it. It wasn't math. It right. was alternatives, how you could come up with solutions. Okay? And, and all those exceptions, too. Right? Well, and exceptions to exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, I, I love it. And I'm so grateful that so many people think that tax law is boring because it wasn't. It really wasn't to me. And I'll t- tell you more about what, how I got more into it. As, as, as right. we go along. So then you stayed in and you went you went to Ann Arbor, you were there after your community college days and you majored in I was business school. Business There's school no way. major as business school. Yeah, and you, law school had no major. Wasn't it? I, I could take it, I, I could take I took real estate, I took finance, I took accounting, which I hated, I took tax accounting, which I loved, I took marketing. I mean, I knew I was destined to be Pretty good in selling because I got an A plus in marketing. <laughs> Not many people got A pluses in business school. Yeah. That's the only A plus I ever got. And then I went to law school and I took every tax course and business yeah. related course that well, I could possibly take. What What interests me is that you say you didn't like accounting numbers. It sounds like, but you like tax accounting, which yeah, because, is because it was it was alternatives. It okay. was thinking through niches that you could find. I see. Okay, all none of it. A fraud, more like a puzzle for you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. It's a puzzle, and you're fitting the pieces together. That that enthralled me, not just intrigued me, but enthralled me. So you went to law school, and you knew there was a tax law curriculum there. They had a lot of tax courses. They had a very famous professor named L. Hart H. A. R. T. Wright, who had come to Michigan from Oklahoma. And he taught a number of tax courses, basic tax, corporate tax, he had some tax seminars. And his, the image was he would stand on his desk and say, you have to look from the top of the mountain and look down all sides to see through. And that's just an image that was burned into me from, from L. Hart Wright. And he was a consultant to the IRS. And he actually helped me get my first job. Was he one of the authors of the code? He was one of the people who helped them develop sections of the code and sections of the regs. We'll talk about authors of the code because that happened. I worked for somebody who was one of the authors of the code at Aaron Fox. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, the code was written in, what, 1930s or so, right? Well, the, the, the Internal Revenue Code was updated in 1939. And then it was updated again in 1954. I think it was drafted in 1933. Well, there was there were earlier versions of the code. The 39 was a big upgrade, and it's interesting because when I well when I started at Aaron Fox, Al Aaron was teaching corporate tax, 
at Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is 1964. And he asked me to sit in his course. And I did. Well, at that time, Georgetown was in an old building at 7th and E. It was an air condition. It's where I took the bar. And Al Arendt was still citing the 1939 code. Okay. And that was strange to me. So I had to help him interpret it into the 54 code. Okay. <laughs> but it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. Interesting. So, so tax law was your real focus then yes. in law school. Yes. You, didn't, you didn't look at anything else. What about real estate? So you eventually got into actually, real estate. Actually, property law. I, I loved property law. I really did. I, I took it. It was a required course. Michigan no longer yeah. requires property as a course what? for any students. I'm, and I understand so a lot of law So what's the base curriculum now? For well, law doesn't, isn't everyone at some point going to own some property, hopefully? It's a voluntary course. And I tell my students, even though I'm getting them on their two, two L's or three L's, for God's sakes, take a property course. Everybody has to learn it. Okay? Yeah, what do we start with? Fee simple, one peppercorn, all these kinds of things. But it's basic. Well, English so common world. law was formed by property law. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah. the first thing. Yeah. Uh, it, it's strange to me the law, that at least Michigan, maybe other law schools as well, no longer requires it. Well, I, no, I, I took it. I loved it. I, I, I I, the only course I didn't enjoy in my first year in Michigan was criminal law. It just was not something that I enjoyed. But I had property contracts, legal theory, and torts, and 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 civil. And, and I, I loved law school. I mm-hmm. loved learning. Mm-hmm. And you know, but tax was really my focus. Right. So you didn't like litigating, though. That wasn't your thing. Never going to be a litigator. Never. I I I, I never I never wanted to have somebody's entire future depended upon me potentially winning a case. Because just like I did not want to be a doctor. I did not want to have anybody's life at my hands. Yes, as a tax lawyer, they may have to pay more taxes. They may find something they thought wasn't taxable was. As long as they're not doing something that's fraudulent, there could be penalties to some extent and interest, but they couldn't lose everything based on, to me, an erroneous interpretation of the Internal Revenue Code or a regulation. Mm -hmm. That always gave me comfort. I was always worried about it, but I didn't lose sleep because I felt we could go forward. Something I'd like to dive into, maybe not right now, but later, is the the ethical part of law and the issues there being, you know, if you're, let's say you're a a public defender and you you know your client is guilty, how do you how do you actually go and advocate and feel like you're you're doing something right? You know, it's really hard to me. Yeah, to yeah, and, and and you could delve into it all you want, but my question, answer is I just don't understand that. I don't understand that. Okay, I, I always admired Edward Bennett Williams. You know, right, he took on Jeff, Jimmy Hoffa, for example, sure. and others. Okay, yeah. and he he knew that they were doing things in my mind, but he found a way to minimize it or to lessen the penalties and everything. It, that's never, it, frankly, it never interested me. I never wanted to work with people like that. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I think every human being is, is, has justification for rep- representation. Yes. In, in a case. Everybody's entitled to counsel. Right. Yes. Even the right most to guilty counsel. people of all. The right you know. to counsel. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, and I believe in that. It's just, I mean... If I didn't like somebody, if I was not comfortable with what I thought their ethics were or their business relationship, I wouldn't represent them. 
I just remember, I remember we can talk about Aaron going to David Osnos and saying, I just can't work with this person. He said, fine, somebody else will work with him. And he didn't throw he me out of the He understood the ethical yeah. concerns you might yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So let's flip back to Ann Arbor for just a minute. Sure. Talk about your lifestyle in Ann Arbor. What, what did you do? <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I went there in 1958 after two years of community college. Yep. I actually lived the first year in South Quad. Okay. I know it well. You, did you live in South no, Quad? I lived in Markley Hall. Okay. Well, the interesting thing is my wife, who I met my, there, opened Markley in 1958. Okay. <laughs> it's now a horrible place. It needs to be torn down oh, and rebuilt up there. But she opened it. I met her. Her roommate was from Grand Rapids, somebody I knew. My wife's from South Jersey. And I started dating. We, we got married at the end of her junior year of undergrad at the end of my wow. freshman year of law school. So we've been married since 1961. Okay. This year is 60 years. Wow. Happily married. It may be eight best years of her life, but it's 60 of the best years of my life. And she's a Michigan grad. My two sons are Michigan grads. I have a grandson there right now. So we're all died. And you we drank the Kool-Aid. We drank the Kool-Aid. Okay. <laughs> uh, and we did that. And we, we, when we got married, we rented an apartment on Oakland Street, three blocks from the law school. Yep. And I could walk there. And then she started teaching after her senior year for, for a year. And she could drive with carpool mates to Wayne, Michigan. You know where Wayne, Michigan is. Yeah, sure. And it was, it was a great life. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, it, I, I never pulled an all-nighter. I was always way ahead of the curve in studying for exams and everything. And I, I did very nicely in law school. It was, it was a great experience. So you, you achieved what's called the Order of the Coif. A Coif. It's Coif. actually Coif. Coif. Okay. Well, Order of the Coif was simply the top 10% of your class. Okay. Okay. And, so it's and, like a Phi Beta Kappa in essence. Yeah, I guess in a way. In those days, JD was the top 10% of the class. And everybody else got an LLB, natural law. Oh, I see. Then it became that everybody got a JD. Okay. Interesting. So I actually graduated ninth out of 300 in my class. So wow. I, I did nicely in law school. Okay. And, and, and I went to Michigan because, frankly, the only two schools I applied to were Michigan and Wayne State. They were both in Michigan. Sure. I, any other law school would be transportation costs. And I had a scholarship in Michigan. So, and I'm thrilled I went there. It was a great school, as you know. <laughs> You're almost as dyed-in-the-wool Michigan fan as I am. Yeah. I mean, I used to study in the, in the law library, and I felt like I was going to a, a cloister almost, you know, like being in England at, at Oxford or something. I'd walk into this huge Well, you building. know, the law school is based on Cambridge. Right. Okay. Right. And I take guests there. And it has the decals of all the schools at that time that were sending people to Michigan. Okay. So you can find schools like Penn State College. Okay. It wasn't even Penn State University at that time. Yep. And, and schools like that. It, it, it's a great location. It's a great. It's phenomenal. So after law school, then what, then what were you thinking? Well, I, I was not going to practice in Michigan. Okay, as I said, the lawyers in Flint were all medical malpractice or workers' comp or something similar. The law firms in Detroit were focused on representing the big corporations. That wasn't for me. That wasn't for me. I got an opportunity to clerk for you. Actually, I I had job offers from Justice Department, IRS, and the tax court, all through Elhart Wright. Okay, Mm -hmm. Justice Department was four years. 
IRS was four years and tax court was two years. And so I took the tax court and went to the U.S. tax court. And it was at that time the IRS building. It now has its own building over on First Street. Mm-hmm. But it was the IRS building. And in fact, if you went uh, and looked at the one side of the building on 13th Street, it still has dim tax court of the United States right next to the door. It was a, a great experience. Unfortunately, the judge I clerked for died. And they let me go after one year. I interviewed literally one firm, Aaron Fox. And unbelievably got an offer. Why there? Because they had great uh, No, 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 no. I had, I had somebody who helped me who was from my wife's hometown in South Jersey, but went to Michigan. His best friend was one of my parents' best friends. Oh. And so he sort of helped me. He went to the opening of or- Orsman, I think it was Orsman Chevrolet in College Park. Sure. And he met Al Arendt and said, I have somebody I want you to meet. So he got me an interview with Al Arendt. And that's how I ended up getting the job. Okay. I was actually the 23rd lawyer at Aaron Fox. Wow. In 1964. How old was the firm at the time? It was, it had been formed after World War II. Yeah. And Al Aaron and Henry Fox were the two key people. It was Aaron Fox, Kintner, Plotkin, and Kahn. Kintner had been a big addition, been head of the FTC, was from Indiana, mm-hmm. came into the firm. Plotkin was a federal communications lawyer. And Ed Kahn had been at the Revenue Service, had written parts of the Internal Revenue Code, was probably one of the two or three most brilliant tax lawyers in the world. Okay. And Aaron Fox was a wonderful place to start my career. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. And you were there for how long? I started there in 64 and I left December 31, 1974. I worked for Aaron for Khan, for David Ostos, and for Earl Coulson. Wow. So Aaron was business deals, okay? David Ostos was business deals and everything else. Earl Coulson was estate planning and real estate accommodation. And Ed Khan was a brilliant tax person. And it was a learning experience. I, nobody could have ever had so better mentors. Oh, my God, yes. It was, it was, I mean, it was a learning and. And they were very good. I mean, they, they, they gave you things to do. They would review it. They'd go over it with you in person. I mean, I was I started at Aaron. I was earning $5,500 at the tax court. I started at $7,500 Aaron Fox. I was billing $30 an hour. <laughs> I could not believe how a kid from Flint, Michigan could be billing $30 an hour. Okay. And it went from up from there. It was a great place. It was a great learning experience. That, and I've tried to emulate that for people who've worked with me ever since. Mm-hmm. So you you took the learnings from them and the way they taught, and that's kind of influenced you? Oh, absolutely. Your career? Absolutely. Nobody could have had been better mentors than, than I did. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So you were there for 10 years, and then what? Well, I... I had been a 23rd lawyer. Aaron Fox had grown to 130 lawyers. Mm-hmm. It was about in the, it was the summer of 1974. I was in a parking lot where we parked our cars. It was 20th and K. And one of the partners uh, came up to me and said, I want you to meet somebody. And he introduced me to somebody in an employment group. Okay. And I said to the guy, I said, well, it's nice to be. It's summer, I assume. You just started. He said, no, I've been there almost two years. And I came home and told my wife, Marilyn, I 
this is, I, I don't know people anymore. I've got to find something else. And I, it was hard. It was really hard. But it, it, it had gotten just way too big, I thought. Okay. And that's when I started thinking about leaving. And we ended up leaving December 31, five of us. Who taught you the real estate side? Was it David Osnos? Uh, David Osnos and Earl Coulson. Okay. And Earl Coulson. And for a while, a fellow named Jack Sexton, who died young of cancer. Okay, colon cancer. All the three of them I worked for, mm-hmm. for real estate. And they introduced you to a lot of the families in Washington? Oh, yeah. Do you want to hear a fascinating story? Yes, I do. Ed Kahn and Jack <laughs> Sexton represented two men named Nick Antonelli oh. and Kingdon Gould. Oh, Jr. yes. That was the people from PMI. I know those two. So I, I come into the firm. I'm, I'm in my first week in the firm, having had real estate in 1960 to 61, and they give me a 99-year lease to review. A ground lease. A ground lease for the corner of Connecticut and Apple. No, Connecticut and M. The place where Burberry's was all these years. This is a corner. Mm -hmm. And they say, we want you to review it. I did. It was very interesting. I think I had 40 questions or concerns. And Ed Kahn, who was working with Nick Antonelli directly, although he was the tax person, said, you know what? You go and meet with Nick Antonelli. This is the most telling experience. So I go and I say, Mr. Antonelli, I'm Steph Tucker. Ed Kahn sent me over here to discuss the ground lease. And I I would like to discuss it. I have about 40 items to discuss. He said, Mr. Tucker, I have a few questions. He said, is it the ground that I want to lease? Yes, sir. Is it a 99-year lease? Yes, sir. Is it, if I have the lease, is it subordinable to financing? I said, yes, sir. Can I combine it with the adjacent properties to build the building? I said, yes, sir. Is it the rent I'm willing to pay? Yes, sir. Mr. Tucker, don't you dare screw up this deal. I don't (laughs) care about the 40 items. John, that's a lesson. Every single associate I work with, I've told that story to. Mm -hmm. And I tell it to my students. Because that was a man who was successful in business saying, don't let the lawyer screw it up. And that's been a mantra for me, that we're advisors, we're counselors. We are not smarter than our clients. They're taking the risk. So we should tell them about the options. We should tell them what we're concerned with. But it's their decision, was not ours. Was there any law professor that told you that? Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. There was no law professor who told me that. Okay, law was theory. Yes. And in fact, when I graduated law school, I went to the dean who I knew. I said, I'd like to teach. And he said, you're not a theoretician. He knew me. He said, you're practical. Go out and practice, and then you'll be better suited to teaching. Okay? That's interesting. That is interesting. But that's the kind of school Michigan was. How did you know that about you? Because you talked with the dean. You talked with the professors. It was a real Yeah, but experience. how would they know? I mean, you hadn't practiced yet. So how would they know that you're a practitioner and not a theoretician? Because my, you're a brilliant guy. The, so. Well, the brilliance is practical. They knew from my papers. I mean, I, I, I mean, even on law review, I was doing a practical law review article. I wasn't theorizing how you could do this and do that. So explain that difference. I mean, I'm... You know, you're, you've been in academics now for a while, so you understand the difference between theory and practice. So what, explain well, why that would be different. Take tax. Tax has a, supposedly theories as to what you should tax and you shouldn't tax, okay? 
There are the people who theorize that somebody who owns his or her own home should be paying tax because they're avoiding rent, okay? To me, no, what is it I can deduct when I own a home, all right? And, and I'm not trying to theorize the other things that could happen. I'm trying to work within the world that is. So you're not doing hypotheticals. You're really doing what's actual, Yeah, basically what yeah. you're doing. And when I give my students the papers to write, okay, and I have them write papers, not exams, mm-hmm. I'm telling them this is a practicum. This is not a theorem. Theory. So you're a nonfiction writer, not a fiction writer. Basically. I would never be able to write fiction. <laughs> I've got enough nonfiction. I could write lots of stories, nonfiction, but yes. I would never write fiction. Yeah. So imagination you, you have, I'm sure. My imagination but, goes down paths. You know, what was it Yogi Berry said, when you come to a fork of the road, take it. Pick it, it up. Yeah. Take it, okay. <laughs> yes. So the answer is, yeah, I'm going to come to forks of the road. <laughs> what, what I'm going to take. That's my whole way of, that's why I said I love tax So you're accounting. a logical, tax practical accounting. person. Yeah, tax saying. accounting gave me alternatives. Right. Okay. Right. But I didn't have to theorize why they were taxing this. Okay. I wanted to get into that. I'm glad you shared that. Huh? Uh, you know, there had to be some, you know, thought process there. So what, what did David Osnos teach you there? I mean, he was, a, when I came to Washington in 1985, he was a, well known as being Abe Poland's well, counsel. He and, had, and he had other many more than Abe Poland. I'm okay. sure. He, I mean, he, I remember when Abe Poland signed a kid out of, I think it was University of Southern California, Phil Chenier. Yes. It was UC, but I thought it was USC. I'm not sure. David went out there. He flew out there to sign Phil Chenier. David taught me something that actually, as an aside, I have my students and I have my associates, many of them, read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People mm-hmm. uh, by Stephen Covey. It's yes. a wonderful book. It never goes out of style. And one of them is listen and hear what the person is saying. Don't talk First, ask the person to talk and listen to what a person is saying and hear, hear it. You can listen, but not hear it. And David taught me that. You're, you're like a partner with your client. What is it they're seeking? What is it you want them to seek? And, 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 and how can, what paths can they take to get there? You're doing a deal. You're there with your client and another client and his or her lawyer. And sometimes the lawyer is blocking it. You tell your client, go outside the room with the other person. Keep the lawyers out of it. You can make the deal. The lawyer is impeding the deal. Don't impede a deal. Always think. And the other thing, another thing that, that Stephen Covey says is keep the end in sight. That's right. What is the Begin end? Begin with the end in mind. Yes, right? Right? right. And, and so you, I said to my client, we're going to go in there. They're asking X. What is the highest thing you're willing to give so I know how we should be negotiating? So you set the boundaries right up front. That's what I learned to do. David taught me that, okay? Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I use that every single day of my career, okay? You don't learn that in law so school. The principle you were talking about earlier is seek to understand and then be understood. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. You read Stephen Covey. Of course. Okay? I've read it. And, yes. and, 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 and he uh, points out issues with his family and everything else, John. But, but it's accurate. It's, it's, by the way, that's what my dad taught me. I didn't learn it in reading Stephen Covey. I didn't read Stephen Covey. Actually, I didn't read it until I started teaching at Georgetown Entrepreneurship. 
Well, that's what I learned the it most. It just resonated. With it was my dad. That's what my dad taught me, okay? Mm -hmm. And then David taught me further, okay? Mm -hmm. You can't always, too many lawyers, and, and, and you know this, think that they're smarter than anybody, okay? And maybe it's advantage to be a Midwesterner, that you don't come out with an elitist feeling, okay? I've always told my people, I, and people say, what are you? I still say I'm a Midwesterner by background, mm -hmm. okay? And, and, and maybe that's part of it, okay? And I think that that's... You might have been a fish out of water at Harvard Law School. Then. Well, the answer is I, I, I would probably have been a fish out of water at, at a school like Harvard. Again, because I, I, I couldn't deal with that. I, I couldn't deal with, with the, you know, the, the paper chase, you know, competing with... Kingsfield, with, right. with, with, believe it or not, in Michigan... We all talked with each other. We rooted for each other. Okay, mm -hmm. and 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 it, it just maybe it's, that's what it was. And no matter where the people were from, okay, you came together at Michigan Law School. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So so you were there ten years, and then you had a business foundation, a law degree. Was was real estate a natural specialty, as it was, and perhaps still? is the most uh, prosperous non-government related business activity in Washington, D.C. area? When I came to Washington in 1963, when the private practice is 64, the number one non-governmental business was real estate. There's no question about it. So a good number of the clients that I had, Aaron Fox, were business real estate people, okay, developers, okay, you know what the second largest business was in 1964? You wouldn't believe it. It was printing. Really? Because the general uh, printing office could not do enough. So there are lots of lots of printers in this area who made ma major livings out of the printing industry. Luckily, as printing went down, they all owned their real estate. Okay? They all owned their real estate. And a good number of them used their earnings from printing to acquire more real estate. So they printed mostly government documents? A good was part it? of it was government documents. Yeah. Absolutely. There wasn't submissions to the SEC right. or things like right. that because New York was the, the area for that. So I, that was all business. Okay? I would think the IRS would have their own printing press. The IRS did not have their own <laughs> printing press. But neither, well, you could go paper. in. Their government printing office had an actual store on Pennsylvania Avenue between 17th and 18th. And you could go there and find all sorts of government printing things that were of interest, okay? It was, it, was, it was a different world back then. And so I got into a lot of people with real estate. But, and this is where I diverged, okay? Are you ready to hear about this? Well, sure, okay. let's go. You would work diligently around the clock sometimes, even late, although I always went home. I always had dinner at home. But in those days, you didn't have computers. You could write at home to get contracts, our leases done for clients, and then they wouldn't get back to you for three or four weeks, and then they'd rush you again. And, I, you know, I decided that that's not what I wanted to do, to always be beholden to somebody rushing me to get something and then not looking at it. I then realized that tax was to tell on every dog, and every real estate client was focused on ordinary income versus capital gain, much more so than deductions versus capitalization. And nobody taught it, okay? And in fact, when I started, I had started teaching corporate tax at George Washington. Judge Tannewald of the U.S. Tax Court succeeded the judge that I clerked for at the tax court. 
and he was using his law clerks, as we were called those days, to help him teach. But they all left town after their two years. So he went to somebody that I had, was friendly with who was a, a clerk at the court. He said, you know anybody in town that would like to teach? And he said, yes, and he recommended me. And I met with him, and he engaged me to work with him teaching corporate tax, which I did. I started in 1969 teaching at GW with him. And then I realized there was no course anywhere except at NYU and one person talking about taxation of real estate, okay, and tax planning. I couldn't even find a book. There was a man named Atlas who taught AU Business School, had a little book on tax planning for real estate. And that's the only book I could even find to start with. So I developed my own course, Tax Planning for Real Estate at GW, starting in 1970. And that's how I got into teaching tax planning for real estate. And that's what I did. I did not do any more contracts or leases. It was all tax plans. Talk about the architecture of your, your course. I mean, how did you derive that? And the laws were in place, I assume, for real estate. The, yes. Tax. Yeah. So why did you need to build a curriculum? I mean, it was there. Because the laws... Be so sewed together into some no, body of work? Or what? It was The laws was, were there, but people focus on real estate was basically archaic, except for a few smaller firms in Washington, like Aaron Fox, like Grossberg, Yelkelson, Fox, and Beta, which, and Dan Zancy Dickey in those days, which were focusing on limited partnerships still in real estate instead of corporations or individuals. And if you look at the records in D.C., you'll find a lot of the real estate in D.C. still shows individuals as the owners of the real estate. By the way, they've been dead for 30 years, and they're still shown as the owners of the real estate. Okay, And I realized that nobody had focused on importance. So my book starts with basis and adjusted basis, because everything is determined by basis, gain or loss, depreciation by basis. Then I got into choice of entity. And this was before limited liability companies, because they didn't come in until after 1978. So it's limited partnerships. General partnerships, limited partnerships. And then you had to understand that you had personal liability if it was a general partnership or if you were a general Uh partner of a limited partnership. So I was combining the liability issues with that. Then, of course, we got into all sorts of things like rent, what's rent, what's deductible, what's not deductible, what's capitalizable, what's depreciation, how can you accelerate it, okay? Then we got into bankruptcy and foreclosure with the experience from the 1987 uh, to 92, but even before that, because my treatise was written from, started in 84 and was finished in 89. That was the first edition because the law kept changing. So there was so much to get into, okay, that people hadn't focused on. Then you had passive losses come in in tax reform 1986. I had to deal with that. That was a big change. Major. That was the change that changed real estate that caused in part, one of two things that caused the recession starting in 87 Mm -hmm. to 92. The other was that the banks and SNLs have been allowed to lend based upon their computation of future value and not in reality. So we're overfinancing and many, many things. So you had the combination of overfinancing when values came down and tax consequences of everything Mm -hmm. after tax reform 86. We can go down a deep rat hole here, but the the thing that 
you know, when I started in the industry in 1979, of course, interest rates were astronomical at that time. And the only way to make money because the rates were so high was to, on the after tax. So everyone was looking at tax benefits at that point. So all these companies formed purely on tax aspects. Yep. So there's several companies in 1986 that went really down the chute because they had underwritten everything based on the tax after tax impact. Pre-tax would be negative cash flow. There'd be just, makes no sense whatsoever. But when they got their tax return, ah, that was their payoff. Yep. And so didn't you think that was upside down at the time? So talk me through that. I, I think that what people did was they <laughs> never needed to look at the future. They looked only at the present. And the present was things were flowing. Banks were lending. Land was being purchased at astronomical prices with loans that were more than the cost of the land. Okay, you had the interest impound and things like that, if you remember. When the yes. interest was loaned to you, you got and, and, and you didn't have to capitalize interest. The SNLs were going nuts well, that, that. And how many lasted? None. 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 Okay. I mean, you, you think about that period. All the D.C. local banks were acquired by out-of-state banks. National Bank of Washington, National Savings and Trust, all these banks or, or went under like Madison and banks like that because it was all real estate. Well, I worked for Frank Saul. Okay. And, and he, he didn't. He was the only one he that didn't. held on. And and he, Giant Food saved his life. They that, did. And I also had a client who had a lot of loans from the Saul. Okay. And he worked with the client. Okay, unlike everybody else. SunTrust and BSL were the only two that worked. And what was NST became Bank of America. They they brought in these people who would put under the people who borrowed from a public bank in Texas. Yep. And all they were interested in was putting you under. Okay. They were not interested in working anything else, which bugged the hell out of me. So we worked with clients and then we had to deal with, with the federal agencies and it was everything. But they Everything was glowing. They forgot about cycles. And they didn't. I mean, instead of loans to value, which were 50, 60 percent, and if it went down, okay, it was one thing. But they didn't think about that. And then, of course, they all had negative capital accounts. They owned the money, owed the money. A lot of them went through uh, either bankruptcy or just plain letting all the properties go foreclosure or deeds in lieu which you can't really do today, deeds and loop, because they're always worried about other creditors. But in those days, a lot of them would take deeds and loop. They weren't as worried about other creditors. So let's go back in history a little bit more. Sure. Because you started teaching in 1969 in tax law. And talk about the dynamics that evolved into what happened, you know, in the, for the 1986 tax law. How, you know, what, what all happened to, to get there? I mean, well, okay, it... it Oh, interesting because my classes in the early uh, 70s and even the, at, then coming back again in the late 70s and the early 80s at GW, which I taught at from 1969 to 1989, I could have classes of 125 students taking, and the worst part was trying to, you had to give exams and they had to be blind. You did not know. Trying to correct all the grade, all those exams was, was hell. Uh, in fact, Robert Gottlieb, who's very well known, was one of my students. Okay. And, 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 and there were others. Joe Howe was a student of mine, people who were, and there's one point I probably had every real estate lawyer 
<laughs> because because it, they had a consortium. So even if you went to Georgetown, you could come over and take my class at GW. Was this a graduate law program? It was not it, part it of the was, undergraduate. It was, but program. I had under, I had undergrad some undergrads who took it. And even Jeff Cohen, who was a real estate developer here in town for a while, came over from AU or Catholic U, got permission to take my course. So I had people from all over mm -hmm. and uh, 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 a lot from the IRS, Justice Department, and everything else. It, real estate became extraordinarily popular for a course. And I would tell them, but there's cycles. You've got to know about how to protect against negative capital accounts. Most of them didn't start knowing what a negative capital account was. Explain what a negative capital well, account I, is. In, in the partnership world, in particular, okay, you get basis in property for what you contribute and for your share of the debt encumbering the property, right. a mortgage, deed of right. trust. Sure. If you have risk of loss, personal liability, and, and, it's, a, and it's a personally liable ability loan, okay, it's recourse. Only the people who have the recourse get the basis. If it's non-recourse, everybody gets basis. Well, you're, you're, you use up your cash capital first, what you contributed. Then you have the loan as basis, mm -hmm. okay? And the more depreciation you take or get receiving distributions of refinancing proceeds, the more your basis becomes negative because you're using the loan as basis, not your capital. So when you, and, and you haven't been taxed, you've gotten depreciation or you've gotten return of capital tax-free, okay? And so when something goes bad, all of a sudden you're taxed on something you don't have. That's right. And so here Fancy. you are owning, owing tax Fancy. for something that you have no cash. And you say, oh my God, how can they do it to me? Well, you forgot. You've got depreciation against your ordinary income. That was pre-passive losses. And you forgot you got distributions. You didn't you save them, you spent them, or you bought new real estate, but it all came to bear. And that's what people all of a sudden started learning, is that was going to happen. And it was. There was just no question about it. And that's where we were. Dr. Flyer had a lot of people who were focused on tax. Robert Gottlieb, Joe Howe, myself, John Harper was another person who left us to go um, to another firm at one point. But they all... Focused on was tax. it the explosion of growth and acquisitions and development that caused this? Because the consciousness of this probably wasn't the, the case prior to say 1965 or you know. Yeah, it, it had to have been the growth in the, it, in the real estate market. It was a growth in the real estate market. Okay, and it was the availability of land. Right. Where some people thought the more land they could acquire, the better they could do as home builders or otherwise. In, in the downturn from 87 to 92, our three biggest clients at Tucker Farmer went under because they had all land and it had been loaned against 100% of future value or at least the purchase price and it went down in value to 50 or 60%. So I interviewed Bob Kettler yep. recently. Yep. So Bob at one point had 20,000 acres of yep. land yep. in Northern Virginia. Yep. <laughs> yep. He was lent by Perpetual Savings Bank a loan that was 100% of the value of the real estate. Yeah. Yeah, we know. We know. Perpetual is one of the good lenders. Madison and Perpetual were lenders that could do it. And, and Bob came from a real estate family. Right. One thing that people don't know is that his father and two brothers, the real estate family, yes. were all Michigan grads. Yes. Did you I know that? that? I knew that, yes. <laughs> Bob wasn't. 
Okay. Right. Uh, and and I worked with Bob and worked with his mother and, and Joe Howe worked with him on the real estate side and I worked with them on the tax and, and, and estate planning side. You know, that that's what a lot of our clients faced from 87 and 92 is all that land that they own was not the value that they thought but they still had the loans. Right, right. So then all of a sudden everyone said, you know, this this tax thing is, is, is a fallacy, you know, having, you know, all these syndications, firms around the country, you know, VMS Realty and you know, integrated resources. And there was a big one out of Texas, uh, South something, South, I can't remember that, all South Park. They were yeah. all these big syndication companies yeah. and everything was, you know, you could negative cash flow. So you had no incoming, but you get, when your tax, tax returns losses. came, about tax losses. you got all your money back. Yeah. And then so, yeah. And then, you know, Congress looked at it and said, this is not right. So were you involved in, in, in the tax changes in 1986? I, I was involved because I was representing a group called the National Realty Committee, which ultimately became the Real Estate Roundtable. Okay. okay? Uh-huh. And I, they, they had a brilliant New York lawyer named Alan Aronson, who unfortunately had Parkinson's disease, and he couldn't represent them anymore. They were New York-based at Time and he recommended me. I got to know him through my activities in the American Bar Association tax section and speeches I had given. And he recommended me, so I was involved. Now, what you have to understand is it really started in 1984, okay, when they were talking about a limit LAAL, limitation on artificial accounting losses. They were saying the only way you should get depreciation was if it was recourse debt to you. So you would get depreciation because you were it was effectively being the debt was being paid. Was down. this an arbitrary? Decision? It was, yeah, it's arbitrary. It was what they were going to do. So <laughs> ultimately, so they were then starting to work in eighty five, eighty six, and what became a tax reform eighty six. And the head of the Joint Committee on Taxation came up with what he called the three bucket approach. Okay, active, okay, investments, and third-party type of situation, passive, okay? So you had investment income, you had your real active income, and you had passive. And so he was focusing on the doctors and dentists and lawyers and accountants who would go into a deal in December, get right off back to January 1 of the year, and get all these losses against their ordinary income. And remember, ordinary income at that time had gone from 70% in 81 down to 50%, okay? And that was a big offset. And he said that that wasn't right, okay? And so he, they then passed the passive loss rules. And the one thing they did because of a particular offering that was made, believe it or not, he actually told us this at one point at the side, he decided that real estate had to be passive, even if you were an active real estate developer. And that didn't change from 1986 until 1993, when they changed it for somebody who truly was an active real estate person. They have all the tests for what's active, okay? And it was one deal that changed it for him. And the deal involved a major hotel corporation that was selling off its tax losses from the hotels that it was developing. Mm -hmm. And they went bananas on the hill. Okay, saying so a corporation like this, very reputable, could do it. There's something wrong, and that moved everybody in real estate into passive. 
What's that, Marriott Corporation? Ah, uh, yes, it was. <laughs> One deal that they were selling. Okay, mm-hmm. and and it's it, you know it's just I mean that, that that that's this is twenty five years later. So you know, <laughs> or let's see. Let's Did see. you ever represent Marriott? No, 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 no. no. You weren't a big corporate guy. No, I never right? represented big corporations. I represented some executives, but that was through students of mine. Okay. Who, who who did it? No, I, I represent the people at risk, right? You know, so it, it was just happened. Sure. <laughs> well, I know Marriott pulled out of the real estate industry. All the time. Oh yeah, they're they're just managers now. They're not owners. Yeah. yeah, yeah, on purpose. Oh yes, and they were right doing it. They were right doing it. That's where, that's where their income. When you own real estate, notwithstanding depreciation, and you're a business company, okay, it's a dead asset. Right. And it just drag on earnings. None of the department stores own the real estate. Okay, if they could avoid it, there are lots and lots of cases about department stores uh, selling it and taking losses just to get out of it and renting it back. Mm-hmm. There's this whole sale and leaseback issue on financing, whether it's financing or whether it's a sale and a true leaseback and whether you can take a loss. But it's it's a dead asset. Just like I always tell my students, land's a dead asset. Land is absolutely can sit there and you only know whether it's worth something when you go to sell. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, it's a dead asset. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's why people may do ground leases for 99 years. Because but there's more value that, creation in land than any other aspect of real well, estate. Well, home builders discovered that. Yes. That's why those home builders pre-86 were buying land. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because once you got the zoning, it wasn't always easy, particularly in those days in Montgomery County. Yeah. Well, D.C., but more Montgomery County than Northern Virginia. But that's right. It was the land. The homes themselves were pretty much sold to cost. But the land was where you made your money. But that was our very income. So we had to work out how new deals could be made. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I didn't want to talk about your client base in detail, but my research tells me that you were served a great many of the leading developers and operators in the city including the Bender family, who I actually worked for. Did you? For several transactions. Did you? And I was going to, we talked a little bit about general partnerships and limited partnerships. And practically every property they own, they own a general partnership. And that caused some real issues for them when there was the divisions in the family. And so it, it restricted a lot of their activities considerably. Um, yes. <laughs> I won't get into those details and too yeah. much. Well, but. I actually actually met them through a student of mine. Okay? Harris Bolinke was a, a student of mine at GW and was at that time Howard Bender's son-in-law. And they were having tax issues. Okay? And Harris referred them to me and I started working with Howard and Stanley and from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So my second podcast interview was with Steve Lusgarden. Uh-huh. So... Um, well, see, Steve worked with Jay and Fred. Right. Because he was doing the leasing and everything. I was working with Howard and Stanley and Steve Schwartz, or Steve. who actually Steve had worked for me, and then they took him into Blake. Ah, and that was all the tax okay. and estate planning. I never, never did the real estate side, mm-hmm. per se, but I did what I wanted, what I liked. <laughs> Interesting. And Jay and Fred loved the real estate side. Of course. <laughs> of course. So, of course, another client that you have, that how I've actually met you, is Gary Rappaport. 
So with Gary, you do more than just the tax planning for you. You told me you were involved in transactional. Yeah, we've always been involved. I brought in Robert Gottlieb, who really, and then he brought in Jennifer Bruton, and they do the day to day. But Gary, he comes out and he teaches with me in Ann Arbor because I want my students to be an entrepreneur. He also teaches with me in the Masters in Real Estate Entrepreneurship Program. He sort of tells people like, "I'm his grandfather. <laughs> I'm the conservative." <laughs> Gary, are you sure you want to do this deal? Okay. Have you thought about this and this, okay? And how are we going to set up trust and things like that? And that's my role. And 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 he's somebody I still work with well after I retired almost six months ago. And and it's been a really great relationship. And he has been very good in, how, in my talking with my students and everything else. He's a great guy overall. But I started with him. He started when he after he had left his father-in-law's business when he was no longer his father-in-law. He became a home builder, and he realized he was working his tail off for ordinary income because he'd build a sell and have ordinary income. He wanted Did you to know start. him at that point? I, he start, came in to me as a client when he was starting his first shopping center. It was a little piddle shopping center in Baltimore. Right. Okay. With I local, it. Did you finance Liberty it? Milford. Liberty Milford. Yes. I and he was it. looking for, and I helped, I told him how to structure the deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I, I told him and I told all my clients, put some money in yourself. You got to show you have skin Excuse in the game. Me. You're mm-hmm. not just looking for fees or your bigger percentage when everybody gets their money back plus the return on their capital, but they got to know that you feel it if there's an issue. And Gary's always done that. And my other clients over the years have done that as well because I believe in it. I believe you have to show somebody investing with you that you have not only your interest one way, but you're parallel with them. And so when he talks to the students, he always uses examples that he has put in his 10% along with them. Sure. And I, and I believe in that. Okay. So if Gary faults me for that or, or whatever, that's the way I taught him. And that's what he's done ever since. And that's the way I work with my other clients. Yeah, well, two, two concepts I want you to, to explain because they're primarily carried interest. Uh-huh. One, one concept, uh-huh. and I know Gary teaches that as well. And the other one is promote. Well, okay. Both the carried interest and the promote are basically the same. Okay. All right? People call them different things, the carried interest or the promote. They're both based on the fact that many times developers... And then we're talking really about not home builders, okay? But we're talking Income about producing real estate. Yeah, what I call is property health for investment or productive use in the trader business. Investment via apartment building that you own, productive use in the trader business could be a factory or a warehouse because in your own business, okay? We'll it talk could about be it. home building though, couldn't it? As far as churning, yeah. But you see, that's churning ordinary income. That's not capital gain. And typical carried interest or promote is focused on capital gain, not ordinary income, not day-to-day compensation. Home builders are always going to be in day-to-day compensation. All right? Got it. Okay. Okay. So the carried interest or promote was to take a young person, somebody who had nothing and couldn't invest, and to give them an opportunity to gain from their work in the company. Mm -hmm. All right? called in many cases sweat equity. Right. But by the way, sweat equity is a term that the tax writing people have focused on and saying that's really a different form of compensation. And it should be ordinary income, not capital gain. 
but it, it was setting up where we would bring in somebody, let's say, for a 5% interest in the deal, but he or she did not get any cash flow or any capital proceeds, mm-hmm. okay, until the investors had received their cumulative, okay, not compounded unless you had true or prudential or somebody like that as your financing. But if you had right. local banks and insurance companies, typically it was not compounded. So you, the investors would get and an the return on capital and a return of capital. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then that person would share above that, the 5%. So it was a way to work and earn what could be big. The problem was, Real estate, it really worked very well. But the venture capital and hedge funds made a game out of acquiring companies mm-hmm. and quickly within a year of turning everything over and earning these big fees for doing that, whereas real estate was typically a holding. It wasn't something you were looking to turn over right away. Well, that happens when you have somebody comes along and wants to buy it. Quickly. That's the whole private equity industry. Well, that's correct. Okay. So, so, so it got to the point that senators like Senator Levin out of Michigan – and some of the others said, wait a second, this is just ordinary income, it's sweat equity. Why is it getting preference? And so that's how you get into all these issues on carried interest and promote interest. Is, is that it, 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 it's interesting. It's a total aside. I once wrote an article called Pyramiding Your Way to Wealth with Like-Kind <laughs> Exchanges. Like-Kind Exchanges, yes. 1031. Yes. In real estate, we did that regularly. And you know that, okay? What changed? You know that in 2017, they took away the lifetime exchange for everything but real estate. And now they're talking about taking away from real estate. But it wasn't real estate. It was art. Because art was a collectible. It had a 31% capital gains tax. So people like Steve Wynn and other people who owned art would sell it and then reinvest in other art. And that was a lifetime exchange. Okay, and it wasn't painting versus something else. So tell me about like kind exchanges a little bit. So, so you, people did really well because the nice thing about a like kind exchange is real property was all the same for like kind exchanges, whether it was a building or raw land. So if you take some a family like the family that owned a lot of the land that became along two seventy, okay. They could trade their land and then go into an office building or into an apartment building with no gain. Because it's real estate. It was real estate. And real estate was a good thing to own. It's a big bucket. Yeah. And and we we did we we came up with all sorts of creative approaches to like-kind exchanges. So that it became something that was extraordinarily useful to do and to do like-kind exchanges. But you had to have the ability to find the right property. So I'm going to, can I tell you a story? Mm-hmm. Great story. Mm-hmm. It's 1988. A client has a piece of property that he'd overfinanced with Riggs Bank. And Riggs was demanding he either reduce the debt or they were going to foreclose. And he got a six-month extension. Okay? getting some. He couldn't figure out what to do. All of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, this is a true story, a real estate agent calls him and says, you have certain property and I have a client who has to do a like-kind exchange and he may be interested in your property. We're listing it as one of three properties. Client said, great. 
About three weeks later, the client gets a call back from the agent. And he says, well, one of the properties dropped out. It has environmental problems. So we're now down to two properties. Mm -hmm. And the client said, fine. And nothing happens for a month. And that, a month later, the real estate agent in Baltimore calls and says, well, you're the only property left. What do you want for your property? He had never asked the price for the property ever, which I couldn't believe. So the client, of course, said 110% of the debt. And the real estate agent said, okay. So they bought it for 110%. He paid off the debt and he still had money left over and they were going to foreclose. So it, it, I tell my students, it's important to realize that when you're doing something, you better find out the price one way or the other, <laughs> determine the price, okay? But that was the advantage of a like-kind exchange. They didn't want to have to pay the tax. And real estate has always had that situation. Mm -hmm. If it's lost, what's going to be happening is a lot of people are simply going to hold on. And then we've got to worry about what's going to happen at death. Will there be a step up? Will there not be a step up on death? Will there be a capital gain on death? And nobody knows. Nobody knows what Congress is going to do right now. I have to still keep on top of it, even though I'm, quote, retired, both for my teaching and for the people I advise. So it, we, we don't know. It's a lot of being in limbo right now. Mm -hmm. So we'll go from there. Interesting. So in 1975, you started Tucker Flyer, yep. your law firm. Yep. How did that evolve? Well, as I told you, it just seemed to me that Aaron Fox had gotten too big. So I wanted to have a law firm that was full service for the entrepreneur. There were five of us. It was Mike Flyer, Tucker Flyer, Jack Lewis, Jeffrey Ryder, R-E-I-D-E-R, -E and Chris Sanger. Mike was a tax lawyer in Labor Day of 1974. ERISA was passed by Congress under Gerald Ford. And that was Mike's specialty, that plus corporate tax. Jack, you can explain what ERISA is later. Yeah, every it was the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. But I believe, because I hated it, that it was every rotten idea since Adam. Okay, okay, <laughs> and, and and we went from that. I never ever did anything. Jack Lewis was corporate and securities, but and Jeff Ryder was real estate. And Chris Sanger was a litigator. So we were a firm that would orient ourselves. We're all orange business. We're all Jeff and, and Chris and Jack were not partners. Okay, weren't even due to be partners. Mike had been a partner for exactly one year. Mike was a very close friend, still is a very close friend. We have a beach house together, We've never had an argument in our lives, either as partners in law or as the beach house, mm -hmm. Bethany Beach. And we wanted to start a firm. We made a deal that if we could bring in $250,000 in 1975, we probably wouldn't take out anything, but we could pay our rent and pay our personnel. And we had two secretaries for the five of us and one receptionist to the library, volumes and everything else. It's a gutsy move. It was a gut. That was that, I said that it did take risk as an entrepreneur. But it was us. It wasn't one big firm. Did you bring over a lot of clients over from there? Uh, actually, that? yes. A lot of small clients came. But one big client I thought would come, turned out one of the partners was very close to the president. That client did not come with us. But yes, a lot of small clients came. And 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 we, we, went, we built from there. And we were very attuned and very attentive to them. And, and an accounting firm in town, M.B. Harriton & Company, H-A-R-I-T-O-N, Maury Harriton, had a lot of clients. He actually literally would bring somebody into the office and say, Steph, this is your new client. I had never met the client, but Maury swore that we were the person for them. 
And I had people like that. Okay. And it, it, it worked. I mean, Did you do a lot of tax appeals and things like that for uh, people? Or what, what, no, what, what was your planning. primary work? My, well, mine planning. was tax planning and estate planning. I did the estate planning, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. I never took anything to do with estate planning in law school. I thought it was boring. <laughs> but when you, I used estate planning as my hook, okay? If I could get somebody in to talk about estate planning, we could talk about real estate. We could talk about their business deals. We could talk about setting up partnerships and later limited liability companies, bringing trust for their younger generation in, which would avoid estate tax because the gift was very small. It was a cash investment. And then you had debt and everything, but it was a very small investment. So we could work out these kinds of things. So it was the mesh of what I was doing. M&A, real estate, income tax planning, estate planning coming together. And it worked for Tucker Fire. Yeah, well, perhaps arguably the most complex interconnected part of law there is practically what you're talking about. I mean, all those different things coming together. And a lot of it is personal. It's not corporate. Right. So that makes sense. I wasn't working for the person in the legal department who had to go through 14 steps to get up to somebody higher. Right. To have approvals on things. I was working for the people at risk and I was helping them. I always tell my students and the younger people that work with me, tax is a tail on every dog. But the tail that wags every dog is the fear of personal liability. And I could combine those, okay, and make people understand how we could work around it. Interesting. I remember people, if you had a loan that was 10%. Recourse, 90% non-recourse. I had clients who were paying down the non-recourse side, leaving the t- recourse alone. I had to teach them that you have to give an agreement to pay down the recourse first, okay? Because that's the liability side. So the, the idea of carve-outs, were you involved in, the, in that process? Yeah, yeah. Bad boy acts and everything yes, else like yes. that. Mm-hmm. We were always that. But, but. It was very important to know, and there was once a private letter ruling that called it into question, that carve-outs were not personal liability mm-hmm. until they were personal liability. And those were usually because the person who ran the company, the manager or the general partner, uh, manager of the LLC, had done something that he or she should not have done. Mm-hmm. Waste, not using rent to pay the debt. And there was, it was something that was intentional, not unintentional, normally, not paying for insurance, okay? Uh, that was what caused the carve-outs to become personal liability. So the Revenue Service agreed. It's with the exception of one private ruling, ruling they withdrew, that that was okay. That would not cause non-recourse to become recourse until the actual personal liability occurred. The interesting thing is bankruptcy law basically sweeps every other law away when it comes in. So <laughs> that's what's so amazing to me is, you know, when I was in real estate, when I was financing property, you know, when the bankruptcy court got involved, it just said, just wipe every, it was just, you know, it start, you start from scratch. There's no other, I mean, <laughs> all the things you talked about, liability makes no, has no impact whatsoever. But the tax consequences, John, are different. 
Explain. Different. Because whether you go in, 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 let's take a a chapter nine bankruptcy. You you can either do it with a. Explain what a chapter nine bankruptcy is. Well, that's a reconstruction. Okay, rather than white bottom, like chapter seven, okay, or eleven, or chapter eleven, okay. But cha- but 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 you either can go with a court designated trustee, or you can be self trustee effectively, okay. Big difference because a court designated trustee never cares about your tax issues, but if you are doing it yourself and work out effectively, you have tax issues because when you declare bankruptcy, all your tax aspects, okay, carryovers. Okay, capital loss carry forwards, capital gain carry forwards, capital loss carry forwards go into the bankruptcy. Okay, as does your property. But the bankruptcy, if you have a trustee, he or she makes his money by how much money he gets out of the sales of the property. Well, if a property is financed for five million, it's only worth two. He or she is going to forget about that and maybe drop it back to the person who went into bankruptcy. But that person no longer has tax consequences that he or she can use to offset the gain because the trustee has kept those. So that's why you needed to be sure that you were doing it yourself, the workout, rather than going to a court-appointed trustee. It was tax that drove that because bankruptcy, you're right, would wipe out everything. But then you could have a client who was wiped out personally Okay, and they, they had the right to go after that client on those losses in bankruptcy for decades sometimes. South Carolina was for years and years and years. Federal was maybe three years for taxes, okay, so long as there was no fraud. So it was really, you had to learn all that, but we had the tax issues with all that. There's, in, in law, there's a division of legal, actual legislation and equity. Mm-hmm. Talk about the differences between those two. And when I think of equity, and I look at non-recourse financing vis-a-vis recourse financing, if I if I have a, a recourse loan, you know, even if you negotiate non-recourse and you say I'm not going to pay that, and I'm not personally liable because it's non-recourse, you know, it seems like a court of equity would say, what difference does it make? Yeah, the, the answer is that's statutory. That's not equity, okay? And the bottom line is, yes, you have, if it's non-recourse and you decide you're going to let it be foreclosed or something, you don't owe the debt, but you sure may own a hell of a lot of taxes because you have a big negative capital account. And many times that was a big issue. In fact, in fact, what happened in 1993 is when they started getting into some of this, the banks had gone to the Congress and said, we cannot recover property that we should be recovering because the investors, doctors and dentists and lawyers and CPAs, don't want the negative capital account to create tax. Okay, so they then provided that if you had qualified real property business indebtedness, you could use that income you would have had, you could use other assets and the basis of those assets to be reduced to avoid the current tax. Okay. And that's what saved the banks from or losing everything because they finally were able to go after properties where the investors were fighting. Them. So it's tax again is a tail on every dog. Now, you know what? Do I sound like I enjoy it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I really did enjoy it. 
the intricacies <laughs> of it are amazing. Yeah. So going back to the to the evolution of Washington real estate a little bit, walk me through the changes in the D.C. area real estate and legal environment from the inception of your career in the 1960s to today regarding the ways of doing business and how entrepreneurs and companies conceptualize their business and approach the market. Well, let's start with the fact that there's a big difference generally in that you have many more national players in Washington than you did at the sure. time. I mean, you still have some really, really big local players, Chip Ackridge, for example, Gary Rappaport, for example, the Bender family, for example, and others like that. And you have others like Carr who have gone both local and national, okay, mm-hmm. with, with one son doing one and one son doing the other, okay? And that's fine. But then you had a lot of, over the, the period of years, national people coming in here, Trammell Crow, Gerald Hines, and so you've seen this dichotomy. Hines was basically a developer for other people. He wasn't a, a development owned, okay? Trammell Crow was, was doing both, all right? Interesting, I, I once did work for Trammell Crow, way, way back, shortly after we, t- we uh, founded Tucker Flyer. And I met with him and his uh, right-hand person, Don, I can't remember his last name, who was really his right-hand person, really terrific lawyer, but he was really a developer with him. And Trammell Crow said to me, you know, Steph, he said, I won't take on anybody unless they're willing to start in doing leasing. He said, if you learn That's how right. to lease, yeah. you will learn how to be a developer and you'll be really useful to me. I don't want people going to go on their own, but I want people to be really well, useful to the company. That's were set up. That's right. the leasing people. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so other people had different concepts. You know, start with finance. He said, well, finance, you, you get developed, you get the, uh, the people to assist the you on that. The lease is the key document in, in all in real, real estate. estate, right? It always was. Yeah. My first day in the business. Yeah. I had a stack of 10 leases. Read the lease, understand every term. And if you don't, come talk to me. That was it. And I was a business person. I was an attorney. Right. And I teach my students in the master's in real estate, don't rely on an attorney. You better learn how to do this yourself. Because the attorney may be some friend you went to school with, but he or she may not understand real estate. It may not understand the provisions. Okay. So that's what I tell them. You, you have to learn. I, I actually force feed them documents so they can actually learn how to think of them for themselves. All right. So, yeah. So, so DC has changed in that respect. All right. That you have many more national players here. A lot of the prime properties have been bought because they were offering a four cap, a three and a half cap, a four and a half cap. I'll contrast that with Flint, Michigan, where it's a 25 cap, okay? <laughs> or, 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 or places like Detroit, where it took one person to help Detroit come back, okay? So, you know, the answer is, okay, so that, that's changed a lot. You still have smaller players, and they're still doing things, and they're finding their niche, all right? Some of it in home building, some of it, like, I, I know he died, but he did a lot in this area, Mr. Gibson, okay, who build a single house, sometimes live in it, and then mm-hmm. sell it and go on and do this. And he only did like three or four houses a year, but he did the high quality sure. things like that. And you have other people doing infill. And mm-hmm. then you have people doing it in, in Northern Virginia, a lot of, in Prince George's County, Montgomery. DC is more infill. It's not, you know, nothing yet has happened on the McMillan Reservoir. All right. And sure. it's been going for years. And EYA, for example, has found a niche 
in some of these places. That's right. And, and that's what you're looking at. But I think what's evolved is that there's more of a dichotomy. You have some really big for, uh, uh, national company people, and then you have the locals. But there's still a lot of the locals. People don't realize that. There's still well, real estate is a fragmented business. Yes. Very, and it will remain that way because everyone wants to seem like they want to own their own property. But what's interesting, and we'll get into this maybe a little later, is I think real estate is changing to be more of a service oriented business than an actual land ownership. Well, that was Heinz, for example. Heinz was a builder for others. Okay. And there are a lot who are, I mean, service, but, but I I think that, that property management per se is, is a service business, but, but a lot of the developers I know manage their property, but they don't feel they make the money on that. It's a service. Okay. And, and if they can break even on that, they can do a lot better. All right. But it's, it's watching over. Did you actually remember to build the tenants for common area maintenance costs? Did you actually think about utilities? I mean, what are you doing about all this? The green and everything else. I also did work at National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts. They read. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, Sam Zell. Yes, All right. Of course. Well, what you, well, what you don't know is that he was a pledge of my fraternity when I was president at Michigan. Really? And he started his career by managing I know. single family homes in Ann Arbor. Pretty and story. then he acquired his own with Bob Lurie. They were both right. pledges. Thirty brothers of yours. Yeah. But, and they were both from Chicago, but didn't know each other in Chicago. They were from different high and, and I remember Sam Zell was very much into office buildings having all of the advances Okay, Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff. But in REITs, you couldn't get a ruling that this was good property for a REIT unless it was standard in the community. And Sam was ahead of the community. Mm-hmm. And so we had to wait sometimes to get the rulings. And not we, I didn't represent him. But we had, he had to wait to get the rulings sometimes. And, and, and yet he was there. Okay, so he had a charge, remember, a separate charge for that kind of thing. That was crazy. Okay, so 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 did you, you stay in touch with Sam over the years? I, I stayed in touch with this key person. Okay, I didn't. I did not because I. I mean, I, he was a pledge. I was the president. I was dating my wife. Okay, okay. and so I, that was fine. The pledges are the pledges. Okay, so no, I didn't stay in touch. But but the answer is, I, I did stay in touch with these people because they were active in they read and in the real estate roundtable. And that's how I got to know them. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting story. So let's see here. Working with the Michael Flyer, Robert Gottlieb, and other partners and proteges at Tucker Flyer, you build a great firm that eventually merged into Venable. Yes. First, talk about what makes a great law firm and why did you decide to merge? Well, I think that what makes a great law firm, what we used, was lifestyle. Okay. We were, we were always on a first name basis with each other, we helped our younger people. Okay, secretaries and everything else. We, we, we had that kind of relationship. We'd bring in food. We would take off the holidays. I never worked at night. I, I mean, I went home. I had dinner with my kids. Uh, most of the others did not. I mean, a litigator sometimes had to because you didn't have computers at the beginning to do everything. We were one of the first firms to get the Videc, which was the starting point for computer type of typing and everything. In, 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 uh, in the whole city, and, and we, we had all that. It was lifestyle. We considered our clients 
we consider to be partners. I mean, not, I mean, we build them, but we didn't reject things. We try to work with them as solutions. We, we had lots of meetings. We started with a townhouse on Mass Avenue that had a patio in back and had a cherry tree and people would come and sit there and everything else. And it was a great experience. We brought in a lot of young people. I mean, Robert Gottlieb was one, and Greg Hoffman, who was another big real estate lawyer in town, were some of the first people we brought. A good number of them were from GW, where I taught. And, and, and Robert ended up teaching my course with me over a period of time. And it was that, it was, it was that. Why did we merge? Because in the late uh, 90s, we were representing a lot of startups, tech companies, and we did not have the securities capability to help them go public. And we did not have complex litigation. By that point, Chris Sanger had retired and we had uh, litigators, but they weren't uh, big company type litigators that were fighting big companies. And so we needed resources. Talk about the breadth of your practice. It sounds like you were more than just a real estate. Than, oh, than no, it was an entrepreneur. It was entrepreneur. Okay. Okay. I mean, it was it was it was tech companies. I mean, these were small startup type companies, entrepreneurs. Got it. Venture okay. capital okay. Yeah, and 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 government contractors. I mean, we were representing sure. some of them. I mean, a number of them with people who were not from the U.S. Okay, from India and other. And I, I represent a lot of people who are IIT grads, India, in, in India Institute of Technology grads. But we we did a lot of mergers and acquisitions, a lot of that. But it got to the point where the companies were looking to go public and they needed right. uh, HR securities. people and they need securities and we didn't have the resources. And so we just, and then Jack Lewis and his group left us to go to Shaw Pittman. And we decided that rather than trying to rebuild all that, we should find a firm that really we would be compatible with. And they allowed me to pick the three firms that we were going to interview. And I decided on Sutherland. Sutherland had an enormous practice in Atlanta. We learned in our early process with them that Washington office didn't want that kind of practice. They wanted to be more of a, a national practice, okay? Tax and other, you didn't want a real estate practice or anything like that. So we dropped Sutherland and it came down to two firms, a firm called Piper and Marburg. Right. And, 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 and Piper was about to merge with Rudnick and Wall. That's right. And Lee Miller, who was the head of Rudnick yes. Wolf, had been a student of mine at GW. So I was very interested in Piper, okay, and, and Venable. And Venable was because I had done a deal with a fellow named Bryson Cook, who's still at Venable, on the other side. And he'd always said, if you're ever interested in merging, give me a call. So I did. And so those are the two firms that we talked to in the summer of, of 2000, I'm sorry, nineteen ninety. 1999, summer of 1999. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a, yeah, summer of 1999, sorry. And, and I had narrowed it down. The head of the Piper office in Washington, a fellow named Jeff Liss, L-I-S. Has you ever into Jeff Liss? No. He was a wonderful guy. He was very much into public interest and things like that. Absolutely wonderful. Coincidentally, a Michigan grad, okay? Uh, so I had Lee Miller on one side, Michigan grad, and I don't want your listeners to think it's all Michigan. But <laughs> it's a network that's unmatchable. You yes, know, there are 750,000 living alumni, and it's a network. So at that one point, Robert Gottlieb and Michael Schlesinger was with us. 
went to uh, see Piper and to sort of summarize everything. And a young partner at Piper, I don't remember his name because I wasn't there, said to them, you know, we don't want your clients. We just want you to do our work. And that's what we're focused on. That was the end of Piper. I mean, all Labor Day weekend, I kept getting calls from Jeff and from the head of Piper in Baltimore, okay, and Lee. And I said, I'm sorry, it's not my decision. This is a group decision. Uh, you, you guys blew it. Literally, I had, I had told Jeff List before their meeting, the day before, I think it's all set for Piper, okay? And then Venable. And, and, and we met with, it was then Venable, Bajor, Howard, and Civiletti. We met with Ben Civiletti, Jim Shea, who was the managing partner, and the guy who was running the Washington office named Bill Coast, and with Mike Flyer, myself, Robert Gottlieb, going into the conference, okay? And, and it was great. So, hello, how are you? And Bill Colston said, go blue. <laughs> he was a Michigan grad. He had found that Mike Flyer and I were Michigan grads. And then combined with Jim Shea, who was the managing partner, Ben Civiletti was the senior. They were phenomenal. They were just phenomenal. And uh, we, we, it was a great marriage between the firms. We changed some things. I mean, we, we had never charged a client for lunch. They're coming in and we're doing billables. And they like lots of firms to charge clients. No, we're not doing that. We never did that. Things like that. <clears throat> and 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 that that was it. It was a great it was a great marriage. So basically, Jay Epstein was talking to them at the same time with, with Piper Marvel. Uh, that's right. He went and they negotiated yep. the yep. deal at that yep. point. I think but, Jay was the one that was involved <clears throat> in that negotiation. So yeah, but the one, I mean, he no, he was not involved when we were. Talking to them it was some was some partner who I know ultimately left Venable left Piper or DLA at that point and tried to get a job at Venable. Mm-hmm. And the people remembered who he was. Okay, ah. not us, not us, because he didn't talk to us. We weren't in charge of that. It's like that's who it was. It wasn't it wasn't that at all. It, it would have been a great combination, okay, mm-hmm. because they were highly. Rodney Wolf was the leading real estate firm in Chicago, of course, and I knew them because we had done deals together, okay. Right. And, it was, and they were really focused, but it, it, it wasn't to be. Mm-hmm. So talk about how you market your services as an attorney. How I did personally? Should it be primarily via referrals or is it teaching like okay. you did early in your career? I learned two things. One thing was I never relied on teaching, bringing in clients. It did, but I never did it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. And teaching in the entrepreneurship class. I mean, I'm not even a, a, a partner anymore at Venable, so I'm not looking to bring that in. But I learned always to answer questions because oftentimes the students were at lower tiers in firms or going into firms or had family that was something. And just being there for the students was just something that came naturally to me. I also learned to focus on people, CPAs, life insurance people, and investment advisors. But I learned one thing, and one person actually taught me that. I used to refer a lot of business to a particular life insurance person. He was very good. And one day he called me and he thanked me. He said, he said, I really appreciate your business. You know, I never send you anything. I sent it to somebody else. That was a lesson. I never again ever did anything. There's a book called Give and Take by Adam Grant that you're familiar with. I'm not sure you're 
listeners are, I would recommend to everybody. It talks about givers and takers and matchers. Well, I was never a taker, but I was a giver. And I learned, wait a second, givers don't always benefit. So I became a matcher. And I taught the people who worked with me as associates or partners, don't send business to somebody who doesn't send business to you. Mm-hmm. And that was how I followed my career. I worked with life insurance people who did. I worked with investment advisors who did. Sometimes I, if somebody wanted us to, I would say, well, send me something. Let's work together and see how it works out. But it was, it was that, you know, deal with the people who deal with you. So to overcome the liquidity shortfall in the market, two trends emerged. The uprate yep. surge in, in the REIT formation yep. and the origin of the CMBS market yep. in the early 1990s at a fall of yes. You know, yes. 1987 to 90. 91, 90. Yeah, I was never involved in the CMBS. That was not my thing. That was financing. That was Robert Gottlieb and other people like that. But Upreet was something I was involved in extensively. One of the two companies that started the Upreet was the Detroit Company, Probman Company. That's right. Okay. And I worked with their accountant. Okay. Interesting enough, the lawyer for the Taubman Company thought that if they brought me in to do work for Taubman Company, he could lose it. Is that the Heinemann Miller? No, no, no. It was not Heinemann Miller. It was, it was a, 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 lo- a small local practice. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. That wasn't Honey. And, and I, I never would take anybody. If somebody referred things to me, I learned don't take on the client because you'll never get a referral again from anybody. The word will go out. But the, the accountant I got along with really well. And he would, and I worked on a lot of that. That was a tax. That was tax. You, you, it came out of a ruling by the revenue service that you could contribute to a partnership and have no gain. It's part of the internal revenue code. Uh-huh. But you couldn't contribute to a REIT because that was not a partnership. You would have gain and you'd have your negative capital account. Can you step back and explain what a, what that is an UPREIT? Yeah, and, and absolutely. Okay. UPREIT is an umbrella partnership REIT. It was where a real estate investment trust raised cash, put it down into a partnership. It contributed its cash. People would come and contribute their partnership interests, or the partnership would contribute the real estate into this partnership, which had cash from the REIT. Mm-hmm. So it was an umbrella partnership over either many partnerships or over many properties. And we did it in the early years. An upreach, and I did lots of upreach transactions, clients into the REIT, where they would assure you you would not lose your tax basis. For 15 years. Now, that was a burden for the REITs ultimately because that meant they had to keep debt on this or give you a share of the debt of the umbrella partnership. You got your effectively your, your what we call bottom guarantees ultimately. If it was guaranteed, you guaranteed the last part so that after all, all, all the debt came out, it was pretty certain there'd be something left over. That's where you would have your guarantee on that last mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't have tax consequences. But ultimately, the REITs became, upreads became so popular, it went down from 15 years to 10. And ultimately, it was only three. And so you only had insurance for three. Well, it was okay if your client was in his 70s or 80s. And you thought that 15 years, they would die and get a step up in basic. But nobody died. And sooner or later, they started getting phantom income, it was called. Income because the negative capital was going away. And so they did a lot of planning, and we have 
could do a lot of things, but it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating working with a brick and save the read industry that they could do that because they could raise the capital, put the property into the partnership. It was a resurgence of the, of the, of the read industry. Absolutely. Really, because REITs had started back in the 1950s, I think, yes. early, early 60s. REITs had actually started in 1960. In 58, Congress passed a bill, but Eisenhower rejected it because they wanted ordinary people to have an ability to invest in real estate. But Eisenhower uh, vetoed it. And then it got passed again in 1960 before he left office and he, he agreed. So they actually started in 1960 and they started back then. But it had, in the 70s, a lot of the REITs were mortgage REITs. They were right. lending. Continental Illinois. Continental Illinois was a big one. And there were lenders. And then they took big hits because they often made the loans the banks wouldn't make. Okay, higher loan to value ratios. Okay, and and so they made, so they had a lot of wonder. So you, it it reinvigorated and saved the REIT industry, as you said. One of the first equity REITs of all is still here in Washington and exists now. Washington Real Estate Investment Trust. Wash REIT. Yeah. B. Frank. Yes. Okay. Mr. Khan. Yes, B. Franklin Khan. I remember that one. It was a client of Aaron Fox. I never worked on it. But they were a client of Aaron Fox. He was Henry Fox's brother-in-law. Oh, I that was a relationship. Yeah, it's Washington, and I know, uh, and Robert Golly over the years did a lot of work for Washington Real Estate Investment Trust mm-hmm. on their real estate deals. Yes. Sure, and you know, I think of a lot of the developers here in town in the early 1990s used that as basically their escape mechanism. Charles E. Smith, that was one. Charles E. Smith, JBG, Oliver Carr, Oliver Carr, absolutely, absolutely, right. that, and, and it worked. Yes, it did. It did work. Yeah. First, first Washington was another one yep. that formed at that time. Yep. So there were several that, uh, yeah. that really bailed themselves yep. out at that point. So many lawyers shift into the business side as they see their clients succeed in business transactions. And you had a business foundation and now teach entrepreneurship. Often the complaints I hear about some lawyers is that they sometimes cross over into making business decisions or offer business advice. How do you coach your colleagues on this fine line between legal and business advice? Well, I start with the fact that we are lawyers. We are advisors and counselors. We're not making the decision and we're not the ones at risk. And therefore, you have to make sure that you clarify to your client, these are the alternatives. This may be the alternative I suggest, but this is your decision. And I will explain what the facts are and what the possibilities are on each of the alternatives, okay? And that's where it goes. If I have a client who's trying to take advantage of something I don't think is legal, I don't, when I use the word legal, it fits uh, within the parameters. Remember, I'm not a person who believes the code is closed. I believe it has opportunities, okay? And I want to find opportunities. Then I'm not going to represent that person, but I want to work with the client and help the client I often have a new client come in, and I, because I'm a teacher, I use the whiteboard, okay, or I draw little diagrams of what can happen. Sure. And that's the, people are visual. They, they, again, they may listen, right. but not hear, but they're visual. And so you want to show them something. Mm-hmm. I also learned when you have a meeting, you don't send a client a 14-page memo as to the meeting. You do punch points. These were the things. In the oh. I also will never ever respond to a complex question 
on the internet, by return internet, because I know what will happen. The client will send it to somebody else, will think it's analogous to what he or she is doing, and then follow this, and then blame me because it didn't work. But they didn't have my fact pattern with my client. So I'll call them and say, let's discuss it. Okay? That's what it is. I think, I think people are visual, and you need to have them picture what's going on and have to explain it carefully. So we're all human beings. So have you ever advised a client on a tactic that unfortunately went the wrong way, went a different way, and came back to bite you at all in your career? I will tell you the following. Number one, I haven't always had clients who are happy. Okay, uh, I have clients who I advise against doing something who did it and quote worked, and that means it wasn't audited. Okay, but I have never ever had a contract or agreement I did that was litigated. In my, to the best of my knowledge, in my career, I have never had that because I am. Very anal. I will be extra care. When somebody gives me a product, I will proofread it, both for grammar and for substance. I, I, I tell most people, don't give me the first draft. Go back and think about it. And I'm very, very careful. But surely tax advice can go awry. Setting up something so you get capital gain and the client does one step that he or she shouldn't have done, and all of a sudden it's ordinary income. Okay, and, and so that's what we have to do. It's a lot of planning, and the client has to be attuned to be willing to plan. And how do you teach your associates with regard to that, that process and understanding that? Uh, it's, it's, it's in-person teaching. It's in-person, and going when they draft something, telling them what you think it should be, and then show. It's interesting. I never revised anything on the Internet. I always printed it out and did it, and I'm notorious, read green and blue, and they mean different <laughs> things, John, okay? And then people know, look for the red, green, or blue, okay? I'm notorious for that. I want them to learn. That's, that's what I'm trying to give them for myself, is to learn. That's the only way they're going to learn, in my mind. So tell me what, you, you now given me this code. You're going to have to explain this code, red, green, and blue. <laughs> <laughs> it, it started when I was in law school. I, you remember, you're probably too young, Lindy Pens, the long Yes, plan. I remember Lindy Okay, Pens. well, sure. there were, my, I used purple, red, green, and blue. Purple meant this was absolutely essential. Okay? This were underlining? Un- underlining. These, underlining. Were not, these were not markers. These were pens. Of course. Okay, and yes. notes. Underlining. Yes. Uh, red meant... It was a basic premise that you had to know, okay? Green meant this was somebody's view of it. And blue meant it was sort of like dictum or not relevant, but it could be something you wanted to know. So this is all in your own mind. You created this yourself. I created that. And all my books, people would, you know, look at my books and they would see all these different colors. (laughs) This is great. Uh, And and that's just who I was. I I mean, I'm very organized and I'm very much attuned to doing things right. So I, this had to come from somewhere. Was this your parents telling no, It was me. Oh, you. It was me. It was absolutely me. My, 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 par- my parents were not focused on things. My parents, my, you know, my father did not earn a lot. My mother was a homekeeper. I had two younger sisters, one four years younger, one sixty. So you figured it all out yourself. I, it was just me. For whatever it was worth, that's how I did things. I also couldn't stay up late. I mean, I, I, I would... Worked hard during the day when I was in, at, 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 at 
in, in Michigan, I worked two or three jobs because remember, I, 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 I was scholarship, but that was only tuition. And I had room and board and sure. books and everything else. And, and I just had to learn. Everything is in, in its own pod. And I have to learn to separate them, to do this and concentrate on this and not think about other things. That, that's just me. So, I mean, now I understand why you and Gary Rappaport are so close, because that's exactly the, the mentality he had in college as well, yeah. what you just explained. Yeah, it's funny. Gary Rappaport's father was in the tie business. Yes, he, told he you explained that. all that. I had Damon Ties. That was his father's and uncle's business. I mean, come on. I was, I was, I was this was in the 60s. Yeah. In the 70s, were Damon Ties. And I, I told him I had the ties. He couldn't believe it. That's funny. I also give to my colleagues and my students a piece of paper with 18 points on it as to what they should do in focusing on their career. And it, it's always worked. I mean, it's such things as, uh, keep learning. That's the first thing. You always have to keep learning. And then you do if you're, you're going to keep up to date, especially in tax, but other things. Don't be afraid of taking on new areas of tax tasks. When I was at Aaron Fox, if something came along, like there was the wage and, 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 and freezes under Ford because we had such inflation, I had to learn about all those rules and help the partner in the firm who did that. Okay. I, uh, following up. Okay. I mean, you, 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 if you can't get something done timely, call the client. Tell the client. If you duck the client, you're going to lose the client. Because of that. I mean, I go through all these things. A lot That's of it's courtesy and common sense and, and just protocol, what you would normally do in, in, in business or law. Yeah, but sometimes many young lawyers in particular think that they're smarter than the client because they went to this law school or that law school. What's a client after? A client's a developer. It's the opposite. It, that's the person taking risks. That's the person who has to think through the alternatives. You're there to help them, not to demean them, even in your own mind. Mm-hmm. Okay? You understand that. Sometimes yes. people don't. You, the thing is, you, what I try to do with, with my, I counsel people too, and I just ask them, have you thought about this? Or, you know, I just kind of bring up ideas, but I'm not going to hoist it on them. I'm going to let them come up with their own thought process because you can't tell people what to do. It was, it was a learning experience for me. That, we talked about Dave Asnos, Earl Colson, Al Arendt. A client would come into his office and say, Al, I want to do ABC. An hour, hour and a half later, and I was an associate sitting there, I was young. Hour and a half later, they'd walk out thinking they wanted to do X, Y, Z. But Al Eric had done that in discussion. Mm-hmm. And it was a real learning. He weaved it in, basically. Yeah, well, this, so this is what you want to do. Have you thought about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about and, and And it was extraordinarily smooth. There was no arrogance at all. It was really smooth. Mm -hmm. And that's how he had done it. That was another learning experience. David Oslos had done it also. So I had my mentors were people who helped what I had learned in part through my father. And, you know, it was great. So one of of my... Prior guests on the podcast, Wendy White and Coulson and Stokes, uh-huh. who you may know. Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, we had actually never worked on anything together because she did a lot of the real estate and I wasn't on that side yeah, anymore. She was at Shaw Pittman too, or uh-huh. in her career. Now she's at Coulson. Mm-hmm. Developed a philosophy she works by, which is, is three words excellence, engagement, and empathy. 
you have a credo for your practice and your relationship with your clients. Yeah, it's, 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 it's exactly what we talked earlier on. Listen and hear what they're saying before you talk, number one. Number two, they're very important to you because they are your clients and if you like them and want them to continue, understand that you have to deal with them on that basis. And number three, they're not smarter than they are. They're the ones taking risk and you're there to assist them. It's as simple as that. You're basically your client's partner, but you're not the partner in your business, you're the partner in their planning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that's the way I've always operated. That's great. So what do you see as, as the biggest challenges today in real estate law? One of the biggest challenges is the desire for speed. You, somebody gives you something to do, they want it the next day or two days later. You don't have time to go through sometimes and think. And very often you're starting with a form. And this is one thing I tell my students regularly and my clients is you may be picking the wrong form. You may be picking a buyer's form and you're the seller. And people are so rushed to get something out. People demand speed. Part of it is lawyers aren't charging $30 an hour anymore like I was. I mean, I have partners in Venable. My top rate was seven fifty an hour, okay, at the age of 80. I have partners in their 50s who are twelve dollars to $1,500 an hour. And, and clients are paying that, but they want, they don't want, they want everything quickly. They want everything quickly because they know they're paying. You don't, you don't give the young people enough time for mentorship a lot. I can say the people I worked with had that. I made sure they had that. But I'm not sure that's true in all other firms. I sometimes get what we see from others, other firms, or, or even some people elsewhere, schlock, if I can use that term. Okay, No coordination. You, you have definitions, and then you have terms that aren't within the definitions, and are they meant to be the same or something different? All of that creates chaos, creates litigation potential, and people aren't rushing to get it done. And this is often from some of the biggest firms in the country. Okay. So being a methodical attorney is important. It's yeah, important. but it's not easy. It's not easy. Because you, it, 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 what, what somebody believes should be five hours. They have no concept of time. They just believe it. You're taking 10 hours because it has to be right. Okay? It, it, it's sad. And it's not just real estate law. It's all the law. Well, it could be the internet. That's what I'm saying. Extent. That's A lot of it is speed. They want it back immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember times that I, that I would say to the client, I, I can't get it out yet. The piping is it's taking time. I would make up some excuse. I would call the client because I needed that extra time. I would put it aside clearly and come back to it the next day. I'd mm-hmm. tell my associates and colleagues to do the same thing. Do you see artificial intelligence taking over law to some extent? Some parts of it. Some parts of it. I mean, yes. we, they don't need to come to us to form an LLC. No. They don't need to come to us to form a corporation. Okay. No. They don't need to come to us for minutes or bylaws or things like that. However, they're taking a form, and it may not be applicable to their business. The bylaws may not cover the kinds of things they want to do. Clearly, the operating agreement, it could be a form, 
but my God, I, I can give you 42 different forms of operating agreements for an LLC. <laughs> I challenge my students. What about this clause? What about that clause? I give them actual documents and say, what's missing? Okay? I mean, you'd be amazed the amount of notice provisions that don't take into account electronic notice. Okay, and, 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 and one thing that I tell my students is look at the miscellaneous first because I can hide things in miscellaneous and people won't read it. I'll give you an example. Notices, okay? Send out a notice and people have 10 days to respond. Mm-hmm. What if they don't respond? So one of my provisions in miscellaneous is if they don't respond, they're deemed to approve if it's not within 10 right. days. That's a miscellaneous. That's not in notices. So what happens if there's a there's a lawsuit then sometimes? Never had one. I had people say, you can't do that. And I say, wait a second, that was in the agreement. Your lawyer reviewed the agreement. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's what it comes down to. I've not had litigation. I would. When I'm not a lawyer or a partner, I hope they don't have litigation. That's <laughs> a document of mine. <laughs> so... Negotiation is a key element in both real estate and law and business. What tactics have you learned in quality negotiations? How has this set you apart from others? In your I don't know if it sets me apart as much as it's something that I've done. Number one, to go back to what I learned from my father and what you read in Stephen Covey is you listen and hear before you talk. Number two is that you go in with an end game. In mind, okay, and I do that with clients at all times. Number three, I, I've learned that there are people who negotiate who yell, okay, and they're trying to overcome something. As somebody's yelling at me, I get quieter and quieter and quieter. I don't react, I just get very quiet. And finally, they're worn out. They've been doing all the yelling and now they gotta start listening, okay? Mm-hmm. And so I've learned that kind of thing. I know this is gonna sound strange. I learned how to read upside down writing so that when somebody is writing a note to his client on the other side of the table, you know, those tables aren't round. They're, they're long and rectangular. I can say to my client, you know, they're saying maybe they should do X. Okay. That's very, that's an art being able to read writing upside down, not words or numbers, but writing. Okay. So more of it is just being calm and recognizing there's an end in mind and taking the time to get there. It's funny you say that because I remember, I think the New Yorker had a comic strip of a guy with a head that was upside down <laughs> across the table. <laughs> and they could do exactly that. <laughs> it's, it's the top of his head was on yeah. the back. <laughs> it comes natural. Sometimes it doesn't. is what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. And I always, I mean, I got a lot of clients by being on the other side, not because I sucked up to the other, to the, that person, but because I represented my client fairly and straight. Mm-hmm. And I got several good clients out of that over the years. Mm-hmm. Okay, never trying. I mean, that was not my objective. My objective was always to give my client the best of service. But that's one thing that, that happened. So what advice do you give to your young legal mentees as they start their careers? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you some of the things I have in this chart. Okay. okay? Good. As I said, always follow up, complete or wind up everything. Always call back. Write, don't just call, thank yous, congratulations, 
Nice to meet you. Always follow up on that. In Washington, read the Washington Business Journal. I know some people may listen to this who are affiliated with the Washington Post. It's worthless on real estate and on business generally. And it's more interested in national and in politics. And I've never been in politics. But the business journal is really good. So read it. Okay. And then if you find an article that could be of interest to a client, send it to them or send them a reference. In other words, you're always thinking about your clients as you go along. That, that's a major, major thing. I said, treat all levels of persons from the janitor to the president of the company or the client on the same level. Always be nice. Always say please. Always say thank you. Be organized, not disorganized. Proofread everything. I once had sent an email to a friend and I said, dear Dick, his name was David. (laughs) It was just a typo. Sure. But I say, when you send a document or a letter, to somebody, and you use the wrong name, they know you're using a form and you haven't looked at it. And they're going to be afraid that if you're drafting yeah. their will right. or a contract, you're not going to look at it and you're going to miss something. And I say, let the client know that you're their partner in effect. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the things I tell. There's a whole list of 20 of them, but a lot of mine is. If you would share those, I'll put them in the show notes. I'll give it to you, and you can send it if you want. I want to have it electronically, so okay. I put it in the show notes. I will be glad be to. I'll be glad That'd to. That would be awesome. Okay. Turning to the real estate markets, particularly for law firms, mm-hmm. how do you see the pandemic influencing space use in the legal profession? I think, I think what first really started impacting law firm was the space issue itself. When I started, Aaron Fox, Two associates shared a secretary, and each partner had his or her own secretary. Actually, I was producing so many documents, I had two that worked with me in that <laughs> Okay? It went to the fact that I worked in my last couple of years with, with an administrative assistant and no longer secretary, with two or three other people. And I was the only one that was really giving the administrative assistants work to do. I mean, the others were giving them their charges and things to take care of. But I wasn't drafting by the internet. I would take forms and redo them and I would give it to the person to do. So I see the law firms have gone. We moved from 575 7th Street to Mass Avenue because it would take so much to redo all our space because it was so much empty space and empty secretarial carols and things like that. And that, that is a big part of it is the movement into the internet from in person. There's no no longer a need for a law library either, right? That's correct. That's correct. And that was a big, big, big issue. When I was an associate Aaron Fox, I used to have to put the weekly change pages in because it had no librarian at that time. And I had to do that. And we, of course, all had librarians. So all of that has reduced the need for space. Accounting firms started hoteling where they had files in a room and you would reserve the room that day, go in, because they didn't want you there. They wanted you with the client. Well, law firms aren't quite the same. They don't want you at your client. They want you meeting the clients. And so they have the offices and the conference rooms. But I believe that's going to require a lot less space over a period of time. And particularly if you say, well, you could work at home two days in the office suite or vice versa. And that to me is a detriment for law firms because how are the younger people going to be mentored? I mean, isn't mentoring sitting down and just discussing an issue? Face to face. Isn't it that? Okay. And isn't it 
looking at the document together after you've done it and 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 seeing what. But you things, can do that on a Zoom call, basically. You, yeah. you can, but then you're not you're not seeing the same thing, and you're not and you're not doing the informal. The Zoom calls are business calls, and and I, we have a lot of friends out of town who do the Zoom calls that way. Okay, because that's what it is, and we used to do phone calls. But for lawyers, young people particularly, you, you, you're missing the interface. And so I think there'll still be a need for So there's space. a nonverbal part of it that yes. you don't necessarily pick up right. unless you're in person with someone. Did you take psychology? Yes, did, I did. Did you learn body language? Yes. Okay, that's one, one thing you don't really see a face, and maybe you see a grimace. But even when you talk with clients, you don't see body language crossing their arms. Well, you know, they're not hearing you on that one. Okay, and, and people and, moving their hands. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I think I think there's still going to be a need for space, but it's not going to be the same. It's going to be less space. Can you see lawyers? I mean, partners in a law firm walking to their office, not knowing where their office is going to be that day. So that's happening right now. Yes, some law yes. firms and an accounting firm. This is a hoteling oh, issue. Yeah. Right, it's not in the accounting firm. Yes, I can see that happening. And what's interesting to me is. That may be good for the firm in terms of money. We'll talk about that. But it's not good for the younger people learning from the older people. And I fear that you're going to have a lot more movement out of law firms when people who are three or four years or five years old. They'll pay off a lot of their student debt. And they're going to say, I want a life where I can actually be a person and not a, a tool, if I can use that term. And I think that's going to happen. And I really... Do. So then what does that mean to the legal profession? I think forward? you're going to not have the same stability. You know, when I when I became a partner after seven years at Aaron Fox, and that was really good. I see firms now where it's 10 or 12 years, and you become counsel, and you become a non-equity partner, and then maybe you'll become an equity partner. Well, there's not the same skin in the game. You're an employee, in effect. Whether you're a counsel or a non-equity partner, you're still an employee. Mm-hmm. Okay, and 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 I, I I just don't know if you're gonna have the same stability in that, and and you know that may be okay with big uh, clients, the banks and the insurance mm-hmm. companies and the big national companies because they know there's be some partner around hopefully, but it's not going to be the same with the entrepreneurial clients. You're going to see a lot more movement with clients mm-hmm. than you see movement of of lawyers. Interesting. So these big law firms are like institutions almost. You know, it's yeah. it's a different mindset, yep. it seems to me, than the smaller entrepreneurial yeah. firms. Yeah. And, and, and even firms like Venable, we're a mid-market firm, okay? Right. And mid-market firms are not so much institutions, but and I think we have a better staying power than a lot of firms have. I mean, you look at DLA Piper, they're <coughs> massive. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh. In the term time of my career from 1964 to 19 to 2020, we moved from being a profession to being a business. Interesting. Law is not the same profession it was, and that's sad. By the way, the same thing has happened to medicine. As the big institutions have gathered people, I know when Hopkins acquired Sibley, a lot of the doctors moved out of Sibley because they felt that Hopkins, you had to put in so much time, you had to see so many people, you had to do this. It became a business. And that's sad to me. Maybe I'm just archaic. Well, I think, you know, America was built on the entrepreneurial spirit. So hopefully we can keep it. We will keep it. But it'll be, I mean, Elon Musk is entrepreneurial. Sure. Okay. 
Okay, so yes, we still will do it, but but there's so much evolution into big business not being entrepreneurial. Yeah, I see that lots of times. With Look clients. at Amazon. <sighs> what? It's interesting. Jeff Bezos is going to go on one of his spaceships. Right. I, I asked my son, who's in business, what would happen if the spaceship went down? Would that affect Amazon? He said, no. It's beyond Jeff Bezos and everything else. Well, he's, he but he was down. the entrepreneur's entrepreneur, right? Oh, yeah. And, and so you, you wonder. I mean, and yes, we'll always have those people. So that's good. But on the other side, there'll be a lot of people who don't have the same feeling about their life or lifestyle. Sure. So downtown Washington's office markets dominated law firms, associations, and lobbyists. If you're advising your clients on further investment in D.C. office, what would you say from a user's perspective today? Like from the user yeah. prospect being yeah. a tenant? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I would say the tenant should be very careful on the space they're taking, but I also say if you're looking to become an investor in one of those, be very careful. Oh, of course. However, a former student of mine, Steve Gutman, who yes. ran Federal Realty yes. Investment Trust mm-hmm. and then left it. Right. He came up with something that was unbelievable. He opened storage units in old office buildings mm-hmm. in, in Long Island, okay, Long Island City. And he did very well because that was creative. People needed storage space, but it didn't have to be long units on raw land. Right. Someday, some of those buildings in D.C. are going to become storage units. People moving in apartments and everything, have, or, or even firms. I mean, we, a lot of firms use Iron Mountain for storage. Okay? Sure. But, but there will be smaller ones, and they're going to take some storage unit, some old office building that, that's outdated, not torn down, and they'll become storage units. Watch well, for that in your business. <laughs> uh, I will say that one of my good friends, Sandy Wilkes, actually started his business by buying old industrial buildings in, East, in Northeast Washington, Converting the storage. Right. Now people need. That's right. Uh, need warehouses. That's right. So that's the big thing right now. the evolution. And where do you get the zoning for warehouses? Yeah. That's big. People yeah. need warehouses because that's Amazon true. and the others are looking to have closer facilities to the main centers. Well, that's where I can see is the, is the last mile thing where office buildings will be converted into storage. And and then another story I'll say is that Charlie Nelson, another guest of mine, Atlantic, that was Atlantic. Atlantic. No, yeah. it was Atlantic. He's now Washington Property Yeah, company. it was Atlantic. I know. Yeah. yeah, so he bought or he uh, acquired an office building up on 270 15 years ago, and all the tenants left. He converted it to self-storage. Uh-huh. I helped him I helped uh-huh. him restructure his loan. Yeah. And we he converted it, and now it's a self-storage this building. He took the elevators that were passenger elevators, blew them out, and put an, uh, a, a big pass, uh, storage elevator sure. on the outside of the building. Oh, really? Up the side. Really? The so it's innovation. You know, yeah. create. We're going to see some of that in downtown Washington. I have yeah. a feeling. Yeah. There was an article. My, my grandson, who was uh, a, a senior at Michigan, fo- focused me on an article which was reframing the issue. So the guy was talking about an office building that had very slow elevators. And people were infuriated. It so, took them so much time to get their office. And so they put in new elevators were speedier. And he said, wait a second. Let's put in TV in the elevators. People will watch the TV. They'll forget it's slow. And that was an innovation that came out of thinking about reframing the issue. Mm-hmm. And my grandson, who's focused on being an entrepreneur like his father, was saying, here's what they're, they're teaching me. Think outside 
the box. Okay, how do I get the issue to change? I thought it was fascinating. Well, I think the pandemic is going to make a lot of people think about that. Sure. Sure. Big jolts in society are going to make changes. Yeah. Just like the terrorist attack happened in 2001. Yeah, so. and, and in 2021, too. There was domestic, not foreign. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's another story. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you shared with me your teaching background with five different law schools over the past 52 years, which I will share in the show notes. Talk uh-huh. about your learnings from all those years teaching about law, law students. And this was on stream. What happened at, at GW... And at Georgetown, I taught masters in tax classes. Mm-hmm. Over the years, my students evolved from wanting to really learn tax to wanting to get a grade and just wanted to just be there just to get a grade. Okay. And I wanted to teach them the real world and they wanted lecture classes. And I, that's why I stopped teaching at Georgetown is I, I didn't want to do lecture classes. I wanted the students to be involved. But this was in the evening. They were working, and they were simply there to get a master's in tax. So I've learned that I really prefer teaching undergrad law students, and, and not, not a master's in law. They want to learn, and they really want to think through things. And going to a lot of my students I have had over the past several years at Michigan, which was undergrad students, we're going to lots of big and good firms, but they really wanted to learn. And that was one thing I learned. You know, it's interesting. There is moot court, which is litigation, primarily practice. But there isn't, is there a court, a, a case where, okay, you're, simulation, you're sitting down with a client and they, they have a have MB, they have a challenge. Let's play this out. Do they do that in law school? Well, that's not? called the practicum, and that's what I teach at Michigan. You do that. Okay, okay. these are the issues, and these are what you're going to do. For example, when we talk about mergers and acquisitions, okay? Okay. I bring in a friend who is a lawyer at Verizon. Now, that's the gorilla in the middle of the room. I'm going to represent the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Half the students are going to be on my side, and half are going to be on his side. We're going to negotiate cool. a document, that's okay? Cool. I, I, I bring in Gary, and Gary talks about what he's doing, and I bring in, what are you going to look at when you're representing an investor? Okay, so that's the that's what I wanted to do with the practicum, which I couldn't do in the master's class. So I've seen, and, and the students, I mean, they're more worldly than we were. I mean, the only jobs I had when I was in law school and before was selling shoes. That's mm-hmm. how I worked my I worked my way. They don't have these, my, my grandsons that are going into a senior year an undergrad, and he's working on, on, on a firm that is, works with startups. And he's meeting with the people at the startups to help them think through their websites and everything else. Okay? Some of his friends are working with investment bankers and learning through them. A lot different income. Mine was 55 cents an hour for a 6% <laughs> commission. They're earning thousands of dollars for the summer. The, the students are far more sophisticated than we were. Mm-hmm. Far more sophisticated, and my classmates were from all over the country. I mean, uh, they were there were Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth undergrad. So it wasn't like there were just Midwestern schools or anything like that. It's a different world today. It seems to me experience is more important today than it's been for, you know, I mean, the retail industry. You know, used to go in and have these massive, you know, amount of merchandise. You walk around. 
if you're and, they, and customer service was not really looked upon in the department stores. Today, it seems like unless you have good customer service, you, people just don't want to go. There's well, no reason for it. That's right. Because, for example, you might want to go to Bloomingdale's, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but, but you may have only one or two salespersons on the whole floor, let alone in a department, and you can't get the customer service. So they keep complaining about people going to the Internet. But if I order something from Amazon, like yesterday, I, my, I, I had fallen and I had broken my Fitbit Versa 2. Just played broken. It was way past the three years you get the stuff. I needed a new Fitbit Versa 2, okay? I went into Verizon. They had them, but they take a number. And, you know, they'll spend all the Wait time forever. in the world. I, and so I ordered from Amazon. Yesterday, it's being delivered today, okay? And, and so it, it's not necessarily that you... You want it immediately because you go to Bloomingdale's and get it immediately. They had it, but you're not getting service there. And they haven't learned. They still have to have the service. It's so important. It seems. Yep. And the millennials are seeing that. And so I think there's going to be a resurgence in customer service, it seems to me. If there isn't, there's going to be no retail left. Yeah. Okay? And that's really, I mean, look at, look at uh, what was that company? Washington something. It's not from here. It's from Texas. They just put 100 malls that they closed yeah, down. They, they, well, they went yeah. to bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. Washington but, Prime. Washington Prime. But it wasn't from, it was from Dallas or something? No, they were they were a spinoff. And I can't remember which REIT they were a spinoff yeah, from. Yeah. It might have been Simon. Oh, really? It might have but, been Simon. But, but look at that. And, and people aren't going in. The malls being converted to... Hospital adjuncts, mini care, their uh, schools, their churches, but but they don't go there. The no regional much. ball business got a little too ahead of its or too you know way behind itself. I think they just didn't think ahead. That was Gary's advantage. It only has one mall, <laughs> and that's a very good one. It's Powers. not hurting. Powers, it's right. I remember. <laughs> I remember. So over your career, what have been the most surprising events or transactions you, you participated in? How did they play out? Well, we, we, we had some really big events, okay? The most famous one I was involved in was the Haft family, oh. 1992, 1993. Yes. We represented Bobby, his sister Linda, and his mother, okay, Gloria, uh, against Herbie and, and, and ultimately Herbie and Ronnie. And that was very interesting. It was the only time I ever told people what I was involved in because there was a Vanity Fair article and Bobby and wanted me to talk about it. Okay, and I never had it before. That was fascinating. We, 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 we represented Stanley Westreich and Jerry Dresser and Bill Brakefield in the sale of all of their properties. It came in actually through Stanley's stepson-in-law, Tim Helby, because I had represented the Howard family, and that was a massive transaction that Robert and Phil Horowitz and I all worked on. I, I've had some, I had a, I was brought in to represent the owners of a government contracts company being sold. The, the, the it was woman-owned, and but she was the real power there. It wasn't her husband who put her there as the owner. We were doing an incredible deal when all of a sudden somebody walked in the door and said, by the way, your husband promised me 5% of the company. Here's the agreement. He had never told her we were selling the company. That was a shock. (laughs) That was a shock. Having to work it out. Having to work it out was unbelievable. 
So I've had some very interesting experiences. It's interesting you mentioned the Haft family. Obviously, Gary Rappaport was the son-in-law there and at one point. And one of my earlier podcast guests, Kathy Bonifay, said she had sat, represented combined properties in the bankruptcy court during that whole process and had more time on the, on the witness stand than any other employee in the company. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. He, he had a gold mine. Herbie had dark drug. He had track auto. Bobby had come in with crown books. So it was his master's thesis at Harvard for his MBA. Okay. And then they had a half interest in jumbo food. So he could set up any strip mall or a shopping center and have four tenants to begin. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that was jumbo. Okay. And, 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 and all of a sudden he, he got into a fight with his son after he had told his son to do something that his son wouldn't do for a period of time until he finally said, dad, are you sure? And as soon as it was done, it was just a notice to the press. Then that went to Herbie went to war. So, you know, it, 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 it's these are, you know, I could write a novel, but it would have to be fact, not fiction, because I'm not good at fiction, and I'm not doing that. I'm doing that. Well, Gary, uh, in his interview with me, said he wanted to be a good man, and I think what he learned from his father-in-law is what not to do. Yeah. And, 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 and I have to tell you a funny story. Real estate developer, very well-known real estate developer, interesting story. I was going to do his estate plan. I didn't do his real estate. And I, I met with him. And he said, I want you to meet with my wife. And, and, and I wanted her to talk. And she, we did. It was a good conversation. She said, I want you to put one thing in my will. Um, I know if I die first, my husband will have to get married. He needs to have a wife. And I would only ask that after the wedding, in their celebration, he raised a glass of red wine and drink it in my memory. And I said, that's really nice. Is there a particularly well-known red wine you like him to drink. She said, no, it doesn't matter. He's definitely allergic to red wine. He should die if he gets married. <laughs> True story. True story. <laughs> so, of course, I had to tell him what she said. He got a big laugh out of it, but that was a true story. Okay? okay. I tell that story because it was so funny. That's <laughs> great. So you advocate for, uh, for an ESG sensitivity on your clients' projects? I discuss it with my clients, but that's not my role. My role is to discuss it and what it may mean. Not for that. That's their decision. Okay. Is what it is. All right. I believe in that, but I also believe that, that they have to make their own decisions. I'm not the businessman. So in the law firm, though, when you were there, did you have a sensitivity? Yes. Yeah. I have a sensitivity. Okay. I have a sensitivity to, well, environmental is always a major sensitivity. Even as a tax law, you have sensitivity to environmental because there's a big issue about whether sure. it, when you have to redo something, is it a capital cost? Is it deductible? Mm-hmm. And what are, you learn about lead paint, particularly. Oh, yeah. For example, in Baltimore, you can form an LLC or a corporation, and if there's lead paint chips in a house that you've renovated or something, you still could be personally liable. You don't get around the liability in Baltimore. Wow. You have to learn that. Okay, and in California, and you may not know this, in the 60s, asbestos was a required fire retardant. And now, of course, you have to remove it. Mm-hmm. And they still want to say you, 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 you're you liable and everything when they required it. Yeah. In spite of, I mean, San no one's taking that to court and tried to, you know. No, 
Okay, but but the entity had a driver. Once represented owners of a shopping center where they were deducting it, and I had to argue with the revenue service. They were entitled to it. It was a cost of making the business good. It wasn't improving the property. It was making it workable. Because every time a tenant would leave the shopping center, they had to do the asbestos remediation. But it was a California requirement. So you mm-hmm. have to deal with all these kinds of things and sensitivity. Mm-hmm. All right? But the cost of the cost of utilities. I mean, you, 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 how, how do you deal with that? So it, it becomes something important to think about. Mm-hmm. So what, what are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Stuff? First and foremost is family. There's no, no issue. I mean, as I said, I was always home for dinner. I might work in my office at home, but I was there to answer questions for my kids, to have dinner with them. Giving back. I was a Michigan scholarship. I, I, we set up a scholarship years later. We, we, we had stock in, in the bank. You may remember Bob Pincus and Franklin National Bank. Sure. Well, it went up 10 times from what I had paid for it. So luckily we didn't need it. So we set up a scholarship fund at Michigan because I felt I should give back. When I teach there, I don't get paid I, 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 because that's another way of giving back. But in this scholarship fund, it says that the recipient has a, a moral commitment, not a legal, to start giving back to the school within, after 10 years of being in practice. Because I believe in giving back. Work, work's important. That's how you make a living. But I never put that ahead of family or, fa- or, or giving back. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Just the advice that I gave you before, plus whatever else is on that chart. Listen and hear what somebody's going to say. Don't call first. Keep learning. Keep taking on things you're asked to do. I would say even if you're asked to affirm to be a specialist, learn from your compatriots what they're doing and how it integrates. Because at some point, 60 70% will leave the law firm. You either go with a company, or they're going to have to be more general if it's not a GM or a Ford or something like that, or go to a smaller practice. You've got to be more adept than just having a niche. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Are you talking about what I think about D.C.? No, I mean, this could be anything. It could be a personal message to the to, to people driving by or you know an aphorism that you believe in or whatever you would like to post up put on a billboard i would say never ever stop learning i mean for example my wife and i i'm retired she's not she attend a number of smithsonian associates programs on history art literature never stop learning Okay, that's what it would be. Never ever. On that note, Steph, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.